This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hi, my name is Peter Tomasi. Hi, this is James Hyman IV. Hi, I'm Dan Jurgens. Hey, I'm Duff Wood. This is Jim Lee. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Mark Hamill speaking. This is Kevin Conroy. This is Tim Sale. Hello, everyone. I'm Batman, and you're listening to my podcast. Hello, and welcome to TBU Comic Podcast, Season 12, Episode 13, Legacy Number 300. 300! This is our 300th episode, and while we're going to maintain our seasonal numbering, we thought it would be really exciting to do something special for our 300th episode. That's just so much work, and we really wanted to pay tribute to the people who came before us, so we're going to have some special guest segments with each of the ones we could contact. Today, we're going to be reviewing Catwoman 80th anniversary 100 page super spectacular and the joker 80th anniversary 100 page super spectacular both of which are celebrations so we thought it would be appropriate to celebrate tbu's own 300 page or episode anniversary with them but first i want to introduce my regular co-hosts this is steph and this is theo and i of course am ian we have a little bit of comic news Batman The Joker War Zone, a one-shot anthology of at least three stories, has been announced for uh, sale in September. I, of course, am extremely excited because the variant covered by Derek Chu features Clown Hunter, Cassandra Kane in the Batgirl uniform, and Tynan has commented in his newsletter that this is not just a variant cover artist's choice. This is actually significant. And, of course, Stephanie Brown as the spoiler. This story, the stories included will focus on Clown Hunter, a story called Bat Girls by Tynan, and also a story featuring unknown but exciting characters. So at least three stories, it sounds like. We also had an interview with Scott Snyder drop on Word Balloon, in which he talked a lot about death metal. But for the Batman universe, he also mentioned that his pitch for Nightwing has been given to DC. It has not been approved, but it's probably going to be Black Label, which explains how DC is managing the fact that Snyder is an A-list writer who wants to write on a B or C-list character. The Black Label allows you to do things in Elseworlds with characters who might be more obscure, similar to what Tom King does with Mr. Miracle or currently Adam Strange. So I think that's I think all of that's very exciting news. If you want tons and tons of spoilers on Death Metal, you can go listen to that podcast. But we will, of course, be covering any further developments on the Nightwing, I believe, miniseries was the pitch. We had very sad news over the weekend, or this last weekend. Denny O'Neill 
died at age 81. He was the Batman group editor from 1986 to 2000. 14 years is longer than anyone else has been the Batman group editor. And it is a period greatly beloved. It saw such classics as Year One and The Killing Joke, Nightfall, and of course, No Man's Land. Before he was group editor, he also wrote Batman in the 70s, creating characters like Leslie Tompkins, Roz, and Talia al Ghul, and, and many others. He has a story that we're going to be reviewing this week, and we'll highlight that. But Theo and I wanted to give some of our favorite Denny O'Neill written stories in tribute. So go ahead, Theo. Well, you know, for me, again, longtime comic reader, I could go back and just think about all the stuff, even from uh, the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, outside of the Batman universe, when you look at how he and Neil Adams were able to do spectacular work in bringing Green Arrow and Green Lantern together as a team. But for me and, and, and for what he's done in the Bat, in the Batman universe, I probably have more appreciation for what he's done as a group editor. If there's one thing that he, he gave to uh, the Batman universe, especially when you look at some of the great events that have happened in the, in history, Nightfall, so on and so forth. He was always behind that, you know, as, as the editor and, and keeping that, that continuity together. For me, as far as a writer, I think my, my favorite work in Batman from Denny O'Neill was probably his time on Legends of the, Legends of the Dark Knight and and absolutely loved the arc Venom that was done. That was my favorite arc of, of that of that comic book, and I actually have the entire run of Legends of the Dark Knight. So he will be greatly missed. He is he is one of the one of the guys that's on my Mount Rushmore of comic creators. He was on my bucket list of comic creators to to meet. I was actually hoping to meet him this year but sadly enough that won't be the case so he will be greatly missed by this batman and comic book fan yeah i echo everything you just said he i've been listening to podcasts with people who worked with him and, and reading the posts of everyone from from chuck dixon to greg rucka to scott Beatty. Everyone who worked with him loved him. Didn't just, you know, appreciate him or respect. They loved him. He was a man who impressed the goodness of his character as well as the brilliance of his mind on those with whom and for whom he worked. I think that his his sensitivity and his intelligence and his his sensibility, a very dark but also hopeful sensibility, really shines in the two stories that I wanted to highlight, which were the Man Who Falls, originally published as a bonus story in the Secret Origins trade paperback in the late 80s. It's reprinted in the Batman Begins movie comic adaptation, and I would highly recommend that. It has a bunch of good issues, but the Secret Origins trade paperback is hard to find, so the Batman Begins is still on Comixology, and there's probably a lot of copies running around used. It is a fantastic just look at the first at the training of Batman. It's one of those stories that gives you the framework for 
how Batman became Batman before year one. And it's just so poetically written and beautifully drawn. The second is Detective Comics Annual Number 1 from 1989 by O'Neill and drawn by Klaus Janssen. It is... It seems at first to be kind of a quirky little story. It's part of a three-part crossover with the Green Arrow Annual and the Question Annual. And it deals with Lady Shiva and the Question and a mysterious sensei and Batman is in the first part of it. And that first part is kind of his own story. It's a story about a penguin with a mysterious drug that he wants to infect Gotham with and hold it to ransom. And Talia comes in and reading through it the first time, I, I struggle a little bit with the tone and the, the style of it. Just it's very much O'Neill and the, the late eighties style, but at the end, the final page just hits like a ton of, of bricks. And it's it's one of the most powerful comics I've read. I would highly recommend it. It's collected in the Dark Knight Detective Volume 2 collection, which I bought digitally. I actually have the floppy, which I got signed by Klaus Janssen. I had hoped to have seen him a couple years ago, Denny O'Neill. But I think either ill health or something prevented him from going to the convention that I was signed up to go. And I did go to the convention, but he wasn't there. Yeah, you know, if I can also say, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, speak about how, you know, Stanley in his time was at the forefront of speaking about social issues. Denny O'Neill was there as well. If you can remember the story with regards to Speedy and, and the the addiction he had to drugs that was that was a story that he brought to the forefront and you know i remember listening to a podcast who was speaking about you know about his times and they he they all mentioned how he was able to take these b and 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 c-list characters and really bring them to the forefront with some of these social justice events you know social justice issues you know to highlight things and and that was definitely one of them yeah and if you ever listen to any of his podcast interviews one of the things i really admire is i i often both agree and disagree with the the stances he chose to take i think that highlighting drug addiction and compassion and of course racial harmony and racial justice were, were great things but I really respected the fact that he was able to work with and love creators and fans who came from very different places. You know, I mentioned before, both Greg Rucka and Chuck Dixon have spoken very movingly about how O'Neill was an inspiration and mentor to them. Um, and they couldn't be more different politically. So I, I wish and I hope that we can have more people like O'Neill who have their strong views and put it in their work, but are still able and willing to work with people who disagree in a humane way. And I, Greg Rucka quoted Hamlet and said, he was a man and the world will not see his like again. And that's very true. Everyone's unique, but I think O'Neill's uniqueness took a form that made the world a better place. And it is, it is sad that he's no longer there, but I think his life is well worth celebrating, and I'm happy to try and introduce some of his work to people who may not have heard of it before. So from there, we want to transition to something quite a bit lighter, but still important. 
one of the longest running podcasts on the Batman universe is Stella and her Batgirl to Oracle podcast. And one of her favorite segments is the Shipper Spotlight. So we decided we wanted to do a Shipper Spotlight with Stella. So without further ado, here is Stella and the Shipper Spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Ship ship shippers. I love shippers. Dickin' bags. There we go for the shippers. Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien said 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 any shippers I'll kill them. Welcome to our first special segment for our three hundredth episode. This is our Shipper Spotlight with the originator of the Shipper Spotlight <laughs> special, Stella of Backgirls Orica. Welcome, our long lost, long beloved host of the Batman Universe Comics Podcast and Backgirls of Orica, Stella. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't disappear. I'm still around. Well, you disappeared from our show. So I we did, yes. We miss you. Well, thank you. So, um, speaking of that, tell us what you've been up to in the couple years since you've been doing just the Batgirl to Oracle podcast by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I dropped off of Batman Universe. I I took a sabbatical because I think that summer was the summer that I ended up taking a trip to Kenya for mission purposes. And I just decided like, let's extend this. And then it just really did extend. And I've kind of fallen away from the Batman universe comic titles with the exception of Batgirl, you know, for, for good or ill, uh, <laughs> depending on what's actually being produced nowadays. But so I still, you know, I still keep track of Barbara Gordon and there are some other DC stuff that I am reading. But yeah, she's still my passion. So I continue producing at least once a month my Batgirl to Oracle show. And and then over at the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, I and I should have said I second, Tom Panarese and I, we do a required reading podcast where we actually look at literature. We, we alternate and, and choose a book and then we talk about it. And that has been a lot of fun as well. But yeah, just business as normal, you know, doing my podcast, reading lots of literature, playing video games and then work like a, an adult. So that's basically been my life. So not much has changed. You know, I'm still kind of in the BatmanUniverse.net family. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I get asked to do some of these fun things. And sometimes I'll occasionally do an article for the Batman Universe as well. I think the last thing I did was a review for the Oracle Code, actually. So I'm still usually around, especially if Barbara pops up in any way. Well, we very much appreciate it, and as part of our celebration, we're doing a Shipper Spotlight for the 300th episode, but maybe you could tell our listeners who, (laughs) shock horror, may not have listened to the excellent Batgirl to Oracle podcast, what is a Shipper Spotlight? Yeah, what is a Shipper Spotlight? Well, to to even start with that, people who might not even know what a Shipper is, because I've had to educate so many people my acolyte my current acolyte is tom panarese he's slowly getting into it 
but I still have to sort of prod him around. So no, it is not anyone that sends or transports goods by <laughs> sea, land, or air, because that's certainly something that pops up. So if you're a fan of DSL, this is not what we're talking about. But it's shipping derives from the word relationship, and it's basically fans coming together and or individually, I guess, and just coming up with two or more people. They could be real life, which gets a little weird, but I do ship my students in real life. That's just my my gift as a teacher there. Or fictional characters, and they could be something that's in canon that, yes, it actually works. Some things that could absolutely not work. And some people do, like, out-of-universe things of, you know, you could have a Buffy with... Uh, what would be like a random character? I don't know, like She-Ra, the, you know, the print, something like that. And, and there are different types of, of shipping as well. So for me, yeah, my shipper spotlight, I was actually trying to figure out if my shipper spotlight began on my show or began as those articles on the Batman universe. But I'm pretty sure my show started first. So they were just quick little segments where I would introduce a couple and it could be a really weird couple like Croc and baby doll. I've done, I think I may have done that or at least joked about it from the Batman universe. And I will give the history of their relationship. And then at the very end, I will say, is it hot or not? And, you know, basically, it should speak for itself. It shouldn't be like a hem-haw. Oh, I'm not sure. It's kind of hot. It's kind of not. It should be pretty obvious. So that was what Shipper Spotlight was. And I think when the New 52 began, I started doing articles for the Batman universe because there was so much. There was so much stuff going on. And it wasn't good. I mean, if you remember all the way back, it was Batman and Catwoman ha having sex on a rooftop. It was Nightwing, and I think her name was Raya or Raya, you know, randomly in an airplane. It was just like all of this stuff was being shoved at us. That's very but there true. Was some really... Although I would say that yeah. Batman and Catwoman uh, being intimate on rooftops isn't always bad. It was more the context <laughs> of that particular comic, which was yes. just very disrespectful to both characters. Agreed. Yes, I think it, it was all about the context because I'm absolutely a Batman and Catwoman shipper. I really wanted them to get married. I think there are a lot of beautiful scenes with them. But yeah, just that was was no good. But then there were some beautiful things that came out of New 52 as well. Like I think Kate Kane and Maggie Sawyer were, were really beautifully done in that comic. So that's basically what Shipper Spotlight is on my show and then the articles that I was doing. But shipping, I love it. And sometimes it can get a little crazy. And I think there is a world where there are wars they are called flame wars where people have these couples and they will go on either side and start yelling at each other, which shipping should be fun and, you know, give you butterflies. It should not be something that gets into a contest and then you get hatred for it or hate someone because of it. So that would be my only thing about shipping is that it should be a positive thing, not a negative thing. Well said. <laughs> so today we're going to break from Stella's usual format a little bit in that since we have uh, three people who haven't done a Shipper Spotlight before, we're just going to go through the <laughs> basics of um, the the shipping. And we're going to give our own uh, what's called an OTP, a BroTP, and a NoTP. So maybe Stella, being the expert, could give us a handle on what these three ideas are. Yes, OTP. Thank you. Uh, this is great. People are actually appreciating my Shipper mania. I love this. <laughs> 
I'm going to come on the show more often. Um, an OTP is a one true pair. So it's basically your number one above all other relationships. And I really only have one, but there are a couple that are like, I could also say this is my OTP in this particular universe. So maybe in Spider-Man, you might have an OTP. So it kind of depends on what you think about it. But I kind of have one that's like, oh, this is the, the one that I always go for. The bro TP is basically like a brotherly uh, fraternal or um, it could be familial. It's basically like platonic. So there's no like sexual romance involving them. So just like buddy cops, uh, it could be male, female, male, male, female, female, people that you would just enjoy seeing together and, and you love seeing them being friends. And the no TP is that you do not want these people together. It's terrible. It makes you sick to the tum tum. That's what no TP is. Wonderful. All right. So um, to, to lay the groundwork for what we're going to be doing, we're going to start with our OTPs, then go to our no TPs and end up with our bro TPs, since we don't want to end on the, the sick to our tum tums of the no TP. Um, and I think our order will be uh, Stella, Steph, Theo, and then myself. So let's start with our OTPs. Stella, what is your OTP? Ooh, Why? Yep. And is it hot or not? <laughs> okay, well, yes, this should really be no surprise to anyone. Oh, and I should who... clarify, this is Batman Universe uh, shipping, yes. just to, because yeah. it is the Batman Universe Comics podcast. Correct, which I actually needed that clarification as well, because I thought there were so many, we could really talk about this for hours and hours. <laughs> but yeah, anyone who knows me at all or follows me will know what my OTP is, and it is Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, Nightwing and Batgirl, or Nightwing and Oracle, it, it works either way. And I have loved them for a very long time, though I don't know that I could necessarily put my finger on when this is, maybe 2005, 2006, about the first time you started shipping uh ian and i man why do i love them they bring out the best in each other is is one of the reasons why i love them they see each other as equals which wasn't always the case with dick grayson of course given you know 60s comics and things like that but as they grew up he really started to respect her uh, they were partners. There wasn't this male, female, like male empowerment thing over her. And then when she, of course, became Oracle and there were times that she was really she was not the, the bright, bubbly Barbara that uh, you would know before Oracle because of where, she, you know, in the wheelchair, she would often be just someone who was down in the dumps and she would hate herself. He was someone that brought her out of that. And he loved her for being her. And, and I think he really challenged her in many ways, which is one of the reasons why I really love Birds of Prey number eight, because I think that shows everything I think about this particular relationship. And I feel like, you know, in my heart of hearts, be even though it's OTP, I think even an unbiased thing, I feel like if comics were to end and we're going to give everyone the end of what it what they deserve that dick and barbara would marry and and settle down and be together i like feel that in my soul and my very bones so it is absolutely hot for me and i actually have that statue where they're you know upside down and holding each other uh so that's how much uh i love them i actually have two of them but that's a story for another time so anyways dick and babs are my otp and did you like the Convergence Nightwing Oracle story? 
I did actually. I thought that they did a good job with that. And I mean, yeah, that's absolutely that was total like Stella service instead of fan service of seeing what would life be like for them. Because I think Dick is one of the characters that I think he could sit down the cowl. And I think Barbara would would join him in that. And so, whew, yeah, that was great to see them do that. I agree. I was just curious because I it's been so long since Convergence and I can't remember if you had a take on that or not. All right, Steph, tell us your one true pair. Well, I think I'm going to win for longevity because <laughs> when I was four years old, I watched Batman 66 with my dad in 1989. And I was like, they, those two have to get married. That Batman and that cat lady, they have to get married because whatever a four-year-old would think. <laughs> they both wore black. She was a cat. He was a bat. I don't know. I just thought it was awesome. But I think for me, it's just the, the pairing of the attitudes. Like, he's always so, Batman's always like the grumpy and the leader, and she is the one that just always gives him sass. And like, uh, no. <laughs> and I think in a way, he needs that. He needs someone to to tell him no, but still be likable, I think. And I don't know. I just really like their relationship. And just uh, aesthetically, I think they look really cool and gothic and you know, it really touches on my <laughs> high school <laughs> gothic, you know, emo side. And I just, I think they're great. They're they're a little much all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm getting sick of Batcat, but there is quite a saturation of Batcat on the market right now. But I'm going to appreciate it while it's here. <laughs> and when it goes away, I'll complain again. And do you have a, a particular comic or story like uh, Stella brought up Birds of Prey number eight that mm-hmm. um, you really hold up as something that crystallizes your favorite stuff in Batcat? Uh, well, I mean, I had never even read a comic before Batman and Catwoman got engaged. So definitely Tom King's run brought me from a world where I didn't read comics into a world where now I co-host a podcast every two weeks. So it definitely changed my life. So I'd have to say Tom King's whole run and definitely the engagement. Or oh. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause the engagement happened. The wedding <laughs> didn't, but we won't talk about that. Yes. <laughs> Theo, tell us about your one true pair. So I made a list because I, I didn't, you know, want to match up with everyone else and you know as as Stefan still have already given theirs you know they've already listed OTPs that I had on my list so I'm going to try to be as uh, out there as possible and I am going to say Jason Todd and Artemis Uh, nice uh, that the, the way that relationship developed in Red Hood and the Outlaws was absolutely spectacular. It was very natural. Um, and it broke my heart when uh, Artemis and, and Bizarro were swept away at the end of the issue. So I'm, I, I need to start picking up on Red Hood again now that I know that they're back uh, to to see if they are going to establish uh Jason and Artemis once again, uh, and I would definitely be on board with that. Artemis, Artemis really allowed Jason to look different as a character because we, we've always known Jason as being the badass of the Bat family, 
but he was always different around Artemis. She was always able to make him seem different than the Jason we've always known. So I want to see if, if, if that comes back. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like, uh, I think it's Red Hood and the Outlaws number 25 was a big issue for you, um, where Artemis was sucked into an alternate dimension. Yes. While, while Batman was handing Jason his butt. <laughs> yep. Alright, so I'll give my OTP, and I think it will, as, as Stella said, it will come as no surprise that my OTP is Stephanie Brown and Timothy Drake. Um, Who? <laughs> <laughs> um, just some minor characters. They've, they've definitely never had solo comics before. I just sort of like them in the background. I really love just the young romance that first Chuck Dixon and then John Lewis um, portrayed in the pages of Robin, where uh, Tim was really struggling and figuring out who he was as Robin, and Stephanie was uh, striking out as a hero and, and dealing with the fact that her father is a criminal. And those the fact that they shared the, the hero life was really uh, a big part of it. And the fact that they're very different, like it's not exactly opposites attract because I think they're both very drawn to saving people and helping people. But Tim is very, very analytical and Steph is very improvisational and creative. And I think those uh, aspects of their personality really spark well off each other. Um, and I think that uh, there have been several comics that I really love with them. I love the the arc in Robin where Stephanie was pregnant, although not by Tim. Um, it was just before they started dating, and Tim just really supports her in that pregnancy and giving the baby up for adoption. I love um, when Stephanie comes back from the dead, uh, and Tim just sweeps her off her feet and gives her a massive kiss. Um, I also really liked recently in Detective Comics Rebirth, um, in the first arc, uh, I thought that that relationship between Tim and Steph was really sweet, uh, especially when he was about to, he thought he was going to die, and he sort of gave her a phone call with his last feelings for her, and it was very moving. I thought James Tynan did a really good job of writing that. And then Brian Vendis uh, did a really fun uh, issue of Young Justice number 5 that was all about their relationship. So I've had a lot of really fun Timothy Drake and Stephanie Brown comics that I have to point to for why I ship them. Let's move to our no TP. Stella, what is a no TP for you? Yeah, I actually was thinking about this for a while and I couldn't really come up with anything. And then I was cycling. I think it was this morning and it hit me in the chest. And I thought, what an idiot you are. It was right there all along. My no TP, which really does make me physically ill, is Barbara Gordon and Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. I cannot stand yes. it. I cannot stand when the storytelling of her history is that she had a crush on Batman. When I found out there was a sex scene in The Killing Joke and I was at SDCC at the round tables with Brian Azzarello, I think it was him, and that whole thing had leaked, I actually got like sick to my stomach and I, was, I thought I was going to watch the beginning of it and walk out because I thought, oh, well, I could see Batgirl at least, but then I found all that. Nah, uh, uh It's just, I, I think that is 
a toxic idea. I just don't think it's, oh, I can't stand it. Even I, Bruce Tim sort of did some flirtation. Was that the, um, which one was that? Oh, it was Mystery of the Batwoman, I think. That animated film. And even that was too much. I mean, she <clears throat> needs to be far separate from Bruce Wayne. So that is a no TP and probably like my number one across all canons and, and all pop culture. I think that I, is like the ultimate no TP. Yeah. I think I saw Bruce Tim on an interview once where they he was talking about how people hate it. And he's like, you know what? Get over it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm definitely not getting over that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that is a, a perfect choice, and I 100% share that. So let's see. What does <laughs> Steph you. think a no TP for her is? I do have a list of five, and that one was definitely on the list. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go and make myself super unpopular and say Joker and Harley. Mm. Because that's so toxic and and what kills me about it is that people love that pairing so much and like even i shouldn't say who but people i know and love <laughs> are you know l- love that pairing and even you know dress up like that with their significant other and it's like it, it's so gross like he's so abusive and mean and yes they look good together okay <laughs> Anyway, and so just the abuse and how icky he is and how just self-centered. And I don't even think he's capable of love. I don't think Joker knows what love is. I don't think he's capable of knowing what love is. And so it just makes me so sad on like a this is the culture we live in and this is what they like level. (laughs) Um, So I just am not a fan of that. I actually tend to agree. I don't know if I'm no TP, because I think Harley herself is also very unhealthy. I don't think it's all one-sided, but I certainly think that Joker is much less capable of love than Harley. Um, Theo, what's your no TP? Okay, so I say this no TP at the risk of of losing my job, (laughs) Uh, but my no TP is Tim Drake and Stephanie Brown. No! Hell no! Oh, I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid. I just Sir, I think you were about to get kicked nice. off of this podcast. I, I kid, I so kid. Ian is so quiet right now. I'm sorry. He's I'm laughing. I turned my mic off so I could laugh. <laughs> I just wanted the reaction. That really wasn't it. I, I, I just wanted the reaction. That really wasn't it. But this one may, might still get me in trouble on social media. And, and since uh, I was expecting Steph to say it, so I made another. But I will go ahead and put on record uh, Wayne and Talia Algu. Oh. Uh, ah. my, my, my other choice was uh, actually Bruce and Diana. I've always been, um, you know, as with everyone else here, I, I, I am a diehard Bruce Selina shipper. Um, so anything that that comes between that, I I disagree with. Now I understand that you know Talia uh, is the reason why we have my favorite Robin, and I thank her <laughs> and I thank her for that. Uh, but well, maybe that not the is, way we got it. <laughs> true, but that is the limit of my thanks and uh, my appreciation for her. Um, and there is no doubt that I, I, that Talia has this love for Bruce. Uh, the reasons for it is, is quite questionable, but 
we kind of mentioned it in podcasts when we've always talked about, you know, the the idea of, of Joker and uh, Batman being in the relationship. Bruce doesn't, Bruce doesn't, you know, reflect that same re- relationship with Talia. He doesn't reflect those, you know, those same feelings. And so, totally against it. It, it goes against all that I believe with regards to uh, Bruce and Selena being together forever. Uh, and that will be it. And you just mentioned my no TP, which is Batman and the Joker. Um, and I think that sometimes it can be funny, like in the Lego Batman movie, but the way the Joker has been portrayed, at least since, you know, 1988 and 89 with the killing joke and death in the family, where he is an unrepentant, sadistic, torturing, murderous, vile monster. Batman is a complicated person. He is, he is very dark. He, he has a lot of rage, and immaturity, and brokenness about his character. But at, at his core, he is a man who cares about other people. He's a man who wants to save other people. And I mentioned this on um, Stella's great anniversary issue, or I can't remember. It was the one where she did The Killing Joke and we had a call-in. And I mentioned this mm-hmm. to Donovan, that I think Batman and Joker are... I don't think that they are close to each other. Um, I think that Joker wants to be close. So I think I would be fine with a one-sided ship, but I think that Batman would never, my Batman would never share a little laugh with the Joker on a rooftop after Joker has murdered and tortured Batman's close friends and allies. I think that is morally repugnant because Batman wants to protect people and, he is an outcast. He, is, he has cast himself out of society, but he's not an outcast because he hates the people in society. He's an outcast because he wants to protect those people. And the Joker has no protection. As St- uh, Steph said, he's not capable of love, of, of putting someone else's good above himself. And I do not think that Batman should or would ever form a close bond with someone who is so committed to destroying everything Batman holds dear. So, so that's my no TP. Uh, Batman and Joker is definitely never, ever. Um, The the closest, the closest those two got to a relationship was in Batman Europa. And that, that didn't last long either. (laughs) Well, there's also, um, how was that? The, the last night on earth, which I, I find, morally outrageous for the same reason i just i am really frustrated with that that comic but that's a another (laughs) another podcast um so let's move on to to happier topics what is your bro tp and of course this doesn't necessarily have to be your one just what is a bro tp you really love stella one that i really love and I'm glad that there's someone else on the call that their favorite Robin is Damian Wayne, because when I say that, people stare at me quizzically and wonder who I am. <laughs> but my one of my top bro TPs actually is Stephanie Brown and Damian Wayne, because... Yes! Wow. 
that little jerk <laughs> whom I love, whom I love, but she does not put up with it, number one. And number two, she is one of the few people, I think, probably besides Dick Grayson, that can almost allow him to be and and have him allow himself to be his age and act his age. And just in the pages of Brian Q. Miller's run, which I cannot hold up enough in, in this marvelous light and go, ah, is, you know, you see this weird development of Do this that relationship. A more, I mean, Stella? I mean, they go to a bounce house together, for goodness sake. When would you ever think, you know, someone of the League of Assassins, son of Talia al Ghul, grandson of Ra's al Ghul, you know, would go to a bounce house. But she gets him to do that. And so I think it's such a quirky relationship. And yes, he's still a little jerk at some times and he's got all these quips, but she can give it just as uh, good as she gets it. And so I just think it's an oddball couple, but I love it so much and it brings me joy. You're smiling. You're (laughs) smiling. I'm not smiling. You're you're smiling. (laughs) Every time, every time I read that issue, I just fall out laughing. Oh, it's so good. Um, Steph, what is your uh, bro TP that you want to highlight? Well, Stella, there are three people on this cast right now that love Damien. Really? Damien is also my favorite. Where Robin. have you people been all my life? <laughs> You're honestly. not on Discord. You need to join the Discord. <laughs> I think her problem is really that her one of her best friends is Donovan, and he's a Tim Drake man. Yeah. Wow. And everyone yeah. else, they're all pro-Tim Drake. Like Tom and Shag, they're all, and so they're like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. I, I, mean, I, I feel like you can be pro-Tim Drake and Damien Wayne. I like I both of them. Yeah, I'm not anti. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and steal what I know is probably one of Theo's and say uh, Damien and Jonathan Kent, because Super Sons was one of the things that sucked me into not Batman (laughs) um, titles, even though it's still Bat Family, Um, just because they're so cute together. And and Jonathan just doesn't even understand how Damien can be so cranky. And Damien can't understand how Jonathan can be so happy. And it's just a beautiful combination. And they bring out sides of each other that is just so delightful to, to, to read. And it's it's almost like if, if uh, Clark and um, Bruce had met as kids. Or what you might imagine they would be like if they had met as kids. And so there's this little bit of, of Batman and Superman in there, but they are their own people. And it's just, it's so fun. And so nothing killed me quite as much as that Adventures of the Super Sons run. Because that was an abomination of, <laughs> of usage of those two. Because even though it had its moments, it was just an awful run. And that was just a sad, sad way for them to go out on. Although the last... The last, uh, oh gosh, I don't even know. What, was it Superman where where Jonathan's all aged up and he says goodbye? I don't remember. Some book. Anyway, I bought it. It's on my shelf. I don't look at it very often, obviously, since I don't even know which one it is. Yeah, it was obviously a Duke Superman issue because I didn't read it. <laughs> but I should send it to you. It is pretty cute. But I liked that uh, issue. I think it was 17. It was where John comes back and they have like another adventure. And I thought that was really cute. Do. It was a good way for them to go out on, but it was just so devastating that that, that was going to be it. And so all we have left is, is what has been. 
Oh. <laughs> I was hoping this would be a little happier, but let's see. What, <laughs> let's see what well, Theo I bought has everything to bring. It's, it's, it's going to keep me happy and joy without breaking my wallet for the rest of my life. That's true. You can always reread <laughs> those great um, comics. Theo, what's a bro TP you'd like to highlight? So just so so it won't be a a, a Damien landslide because you know <laughs> I, I I I had six uh, bro TPs and four of them included Damien. Uh, <laughs> so I am going to I am going to go outside the box a little and uh, I am going to say Selena and Lois Lane. Oh, uh, good one. When when you see those two on date night and then subsequently during uh, the bachelorette party when they're hanging out at the at the Fortress of Solitude, <laughs> that is as natural of what girlfriends look like that you will find anywhere, uh, you know exchanging clothes, just talking about whatever, sipping drinks, getting drunk, you know, that was just I would love to see those two go out on an adventure together. You give me a mini series with Lewis and Selena and take all my money. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. Come on, DC. Yeah, that those two I mean, their personalities fit each other. Uh and they fit each other just as they fit the men in their lives. So, you know, I think that's why they get along as much as they do. Uh, and they did in those pages that we read. Um, so I would definitely love to see more of that. That's such a, that didn't even occur to me, but it's so perfect. Um, and I, I love those those double date issues and the, the nightmares issue where you have the bachelorette party. It's just ah oh, so good. So um, I am going to continue the theme that Theo brought up of uh, good female friendship. And I'm going to highlight the Birds of Prey. Specifically, um, Barbara Gordon as Oracle, Dinah Laurel Lance as Black Canary, and Helena Bertinelli as the Huntress in Birds of Prey number 56 all the way to 108. And what I like about what Gail Simone did with those three friends is that they're not perfect. It's not always them, you know, supporting each other because they're, they're flawed. And I like those flaws because it makes them feel more real. But they work through those things. Sometimes it takes a really long time, but they work through those relationship conflicts and, and hurting each other and doing wrong things and having to, you know, apologize and, and make amends and build the relationship back up. I It was one of the relationships in comics that I have rarely seen. Um, and I think Barbara Gordon uh, being the leader and the brains, but also, you know, her, her intelligence sometimes getting in the way, uh, her making decisions that don't take into account the emotions of the people that she's working with and who she's friends with. And then Helena's impulsivity. Uh, well, Helena and Dinah both are much more impulsive, but Helena in a much sort of darker and trauma induced way and Dinah in a much warmer way. I think they, they bounce off each other and they provide really good as any good relationship does. They, they bring out those parts of each other that you wouldn't get to see, uh, 
I think in C.S. Lewis mentions in The Four Loves, the people you're friends with turn you into a different and better person. I think Wicked, there's a song in the musical Wicked that you know says that if a friendship is good, you're changed for good. I think that might have been a, a romantic relationship, but I think it's true of friend relationships as well. So I I love the Birds of Prey and sort of like um, Steph and the Adventures of the Super Sons, I have not been a big fan of the way DC has chosen to use the brand in the last year because I don't think that the Birds of Prey, especially with Harley added, are the same kind of mature characters that really hold up an example of women being good friends to each other. Because Harley's not a good friend to almost anyone. So that is... I don't know why I, don't know why I thought you were going to select the sirens. I just figured that that's what you were going to do. I like the sirens, but they're not good friends to each other. <laughs> um... I, I just think that's a really well-written comic, but it's not a good example of friendship, where I think Birds of Prey is absolutely a wonderful example of friendship, both the Dixon run and the Simone run. It's just, they help each other, they're not perfect, but they pick each other up after they fall. So, that's our shipper special. I want to give a really big thank you to Stella for coming on and tutoring us in the ways of the <laughs> shipper. And Yay, for my co Yeah. Stella. Thank you, my young Padawan. <laughs> <laughs> and I will uh, look forward to moving on to our next segment. That was great, and we definitely hope we can have Stella back sometime in the future to cover similar topics or whenever she has in mind. But let's get on to something that has many elements of shipping to it, the Catwoman 80th Anniversary 100-page Super Spectacular. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello, everyone. This is Dustin Fritchell, the editor-in-chief of the Batman Universe. Before we continue, we're about to get into a review of the Catwoman 80th anniversary, 100-page, super spectacular, and it features art by Cameron Stewart, who has been recently under fire with allegations of sexual misconduct. This review was actually recorded prior to the allegations coming to light, and while we will be discussing the art and the story that he worked on, we at TBU do not endorse Cameron Stewart as a person, and any things that we say specifically relate to his prior work or his art that has been featured in books that we have that we have previously discussed. Thank you for your understanding. Now back to our show. At best, you're just a chew toy for my beloved Hecate. My real prey is and shall always be Batman. We're going to start with the story. Skin the Cat, written by Paul Dini and illustrated by Emanuela Lupacino. Some exotic wild cats have turned up missing, including those Selena Kyle donated to a special habitat. As she searches for them, she finds what appears to be the remains of the missing felines. They've been killed and stuffed for display. There's another display that looks like a bedroom littered with stuffed house cats, a trap to capture Catwoman. Selena suddenly feels woozy, apparently from breathing in knockout gas. The taxidermist appears, revealing himself as the culprit in the entire ordeal. He wants Salima to be part of his collection. 
As the taxidermist moves in for the final kill, Catwoman pounces. There was no gas as she turned it off hours ago, and she figured out that she was the actual target. Her ruse, his ruse, became hers. As he continued to chase her through the fake habitat, Selina says that she found the missing big cats, who were still alive. She just had to convince them to stay quiet and still. At that point, the cats jump from the darkness and attack their kidnapper for their own brand of justice. So, our first tale. What do we think of it? Uh, it was a little creepy. I mean, not like Joker creepy. <laughs> it was it was the interesting uh, villain who obviously specializes in things that don't move, which is a little, a little strange. I guess we have puppeteers and all that as well in villainy, but it showed off, you know, Selena's cleverness, and she too, like Batman, can think ahead and scope out a villain's lair before making herself known. And I think it was, it was, it was okay overall as a story. What a horrible way to introduce a new villain. <laughs> I I didn't like the story, and if and if you read my review on the site, you 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 could see that I didn't like it. Uh, it just didn't sit well. Again, like I said, it's just I don't know. There was nothing about it that I liked outside of the art. The art was okay, but the story just was. I don't know. There was just something about about it, and I'm typically a fan of Paul Dini, but. I don't know, maybe there wasn't enough pages to really flesh it out, but, eh, pass. I was a bit more positive on it. I do think that it's significantly weaker than most of what Dini's turned in in his career. He, his detective comic story I thought was delightful with the, the worst henchman ever. That was a really fun gag. I think part of it is that this one doesn't have any real humor. It's very dark and it's very grim. And I think that's kind of a theme for this, which is kind of sad for a, a celebratory issue, especially since Catwoman tends to have the capacity for joy as well as the capacity for darkness. But I feel like they didn't really get that many stories that had that joy, that humor, that just, I mean, she's a cat burglar who loves to steal stuff. She she enjoys that part of her life, and there's very few stories that have that. There's there's one that I'll highlight, but this one definitely wasn't it. She was sort of a dark Avenger, and I didn't think that was... I didn't find it very celebratory. I, I would agree with Theo that it's not a great way to open. I do think that... I mean, Emanuela Lupacino is one of my favorite artists. She made the Birds of Prey one-shot that came out last uh, week really beautiful, even though I really didn't like that story. And I think, similarly, she makes a really great-looking Catwoman and villain and cats. She, she's just a really good artist. Unfortunately, the story isn't the best showcase of that talent. So, yeah, let's uh, move on. Who is she? What is she? I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love. <laughs> you poor guys. Always confusing your pistols with your pride. Don't hurt us, lady. Our take-home's less than 300. You're overpaid. Hit the road. Now You See Me, written by Anne Nocenti, artist Robson Rocco. Catwoman needs a safe place to sash salute, and she finds a pigeon coop to keep it safe. But she's not alone. A camera moves into place and watches as she stashes her good. 
Inside the security office, a guard watches Selena on camera while his coworker analyzes various types of donuts. He decides to go on patrol and leave while the other guard watches a couple argue on one of the other screens. Outside, Selena perches on the ledge, waiting for whoever was watching her on camera to come out and try to swipe her loot. Eventually, the guard makes his way upstairs and gets the stash from the pigeon coop. Catwoman pounces. As the guard attempts to strike a partnership with her, she doesn't take the bait and attacks. The two continue to fight on the rooftop. Meanwhile, in the security office, the other guard remains oblivious to what's happening and instead calls GCPD for the couple arguing on the outside sidewalk. On the roof, the battle is slowly coming to an end. The guard doesn't realize that something is ticking in his pocket. Catwoman uses a small detonator to send him flying off the roof on top of the penguin's umbrella below, ruining his well-devised plan. So what did you think of our second tale? Well, I mean, like you were saying, and, you know, something I'd mentioned kind of before is Catwoman does not take things seriously. She's very lighthearted, and it's only when people are in danger or or she sees a weak or oppressed person that she really sort of gets violent and takes things, you know, seriously. Or she really wants something shiny, right? So, like, I liked her indignation that this was a crooked cop trying to partner with her (laughs) and she's like you know who do you think you are they did get part of her personality a little right but i don't know i don't like that she threw him off the roof and put a bomb on him that's a little that's a little over the top uh the art was really pretty she's very uh this is very much michelle pfeiffer's costume with the stitching and the Corset. It was it was okay. Again, not not the best, strongest way to go in, but it did have its little moments of humor, but it was mostly the cop who liked the donuts. That was funny. So I don't know. It was okay. Yeah, when when the the person that's not even one of the two main characters is the most interesting part of the story that kinda tells you something. The best thing about this story for me was the art. I actually, you know, liked the idea of using Michelle Pfeiffer's <laughs> costume, and it brought back some memories. But I'm not going to dwell too much. I, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't very interesting at all. So yeah, I, I wasn't crazy about it. It was just, I I wasn't crazy about it. It was just okay because the story wasn't really eye catching. I. I don't know. I really liked the cop with the donuts, and I thought that it was, it was such a tonal. I did too, but she was the main. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't the main character, and she's not a celebration of Catwoman. So I agree, it's not appropriate, but it was more fun. So that gave it a lot more props for me. I I agree. I think the art was also really good. I like Robson Roca, and I was glad that Anna Senti did not bring back her mole people from her really weird run in the New Fifty Two. So I guess I was just kind of relieved, and I I enjoyed it more because of that. Let's move on to the next story. Morning, hun. Bird me? Ah. Oh, is that coffee? Mmm. We do have unclaimed coffee. Yours is better. Helena, written by Tom King, art by Mikhail Janin. Bruce finishes his scan of Selena, who has been feeling ill. She worries that it's cancer. A sly smirk ensures Selena is something far different from that, and Selena is not happy. 
time moves on and we find Catwoman being her rebellious self. She's fighting goons with Batman on the rooftop, drinking her favorite wine while overlooking Gotham and assisting Batman in taking out members of the rogues gallery. Time continues and Selina is clearly showing her baby bump. She is second-guessing herself as a future mother and wants to return to her life flying off from the rooftops over Gotham. She continues to doubt herself, but it's time. Time continues to move on, and the newest Wayne is crying for attention. Selina does her best to calm her baby down, reminding her of how lucky she is. As Selina holds her close, the baby calms down. Time moves on one last time. And Selena is walking with her daughter, now fully grown. They're discussing how she is so much like her father. Surprised at the idea, she asks her daughter if that is truly how she feels. Selena says that there was one trait her daughter got from her, the ability to steal. When asked what she could have taken, Selena tells her that she stole her heart. So, how do we feel about Helena? This was lovely. It's Tom King back, giving us hopefully a flavor of what's to come in his Batcat book, giving us what I think most people can agree was the best part of his run was just their relationship. And not much has changed as far as like the relationship. Other, I mean, she's obviously expecting expectant mother now, so they're in the next stage of their relationship. And it was just cool seeing her wanting to stay her her independent, selfish self, but, you know, realizing that she does have her limitations now. Seals Review mentioned, you know, that she keeps fighting. Yes, she does, but then she has to take puke breaks <laughs> and just feeling sorry for herself. And yes, she drinks the wine, but then she stops and throws the bottle away after stealing, you know, a very expensive bottle of wine. And just realizing that it is scary She's fighting villains who could kill her at any moment, but this little tiny unborn baby is scaring the crap out of her. And I just think that's interesting that that there is something she's afraid of, and she's finally willing to admit it, you know, right before she <laughs> gives birth. And it's just, it's it's an interesting look at her that, you know, we didn't get a lot of. Obviously, there was the previous Helena. One has to wonder if she, this is her second baby. <laughs> Uh, depending on how continuity has gone since the new 52. But, you know, it's a new experience for her. And just, just winding it up in the cemetery, after, you know, talking about how Bruce would hate being in such a brightly lit, happy, you know, cemetery. <laughs> it's just, it's full of flavor, of personality, and just fun little writing. Like when she's trying to figure out, you know, if it's cancer or not, she's just sitting there swearing in the in the scanning tube, whatever. And it's just, it's it's the personality that I miss from Tom King. I, Tanyan's doing a wonderful job, but there has not been much in the way of character beats lately. So I do very much appreciate this story. Yeah, clearly this is, this is, the best story of the of the spectacular. If there was one thing that I did not like is the fact that it actually is in the special and not actually in Batcat itself. <laughs> uh, you know, when when these teases, when King was putting out these teases, you know, the one thing a lot of us kept saying, "Wow, is this really going to happen in Batcat? Is this really going to happen in Batcat?" Mm. 
but it's a great follow-up to the story of annual two. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, like, like Steph mentioned, you know, right now, nobody can do relationships like, like Tom King can, especially when it comes to Bruce and Selena. And now it just makes me want to, uh, beg DC to release Batcat sooner rather than later. <laughs> I'm right there with you. This story was sublime and I liked several things about it. For one, it wasn't just a Batman story with Catwoman in it. It was a Catwoman story and Bruce was a supporting character. He had a great moment where <laughs> Catwoman says, you're smiling and you just see that small smile that Batman has and it's just perfect. But it's about Selina. And I've read some very harsh reviews that said that, well, Selina is clearly not ready to be a mother and she shouldn't have chosen to be a mother. And it clearly affected how she doesn't care about Helena, uh, Helena or Helena. And that's, it's just bad. And I, I look at it completely differently. I think that Selena, as Steph said, is struggling because she's very independent and somewhat selfish. I mean, she's a thief. So she's, she's really struggling with something that limits her because any pregnancy, no matter how desired, it changes your body and you you just go through an intense amount of change and pain. Your life becomes about someone else and it has to be because if it doesn't, you know, this little thing is going to die. Absolutely. I think you really see that struggle. I don't think that Selena was trying to, you know, hurt herself when she was fighting the villains. I think she was just struggling with the, the concept of letting go. But you see, she still does have that desire because she pours a very expensive glass of wine and then instead of drinking it, she throws it away. So I think that shes it's, it's about the struggle. It's not about her hating that she's pregnant. It's about her struggling with the fact that it is a struggle. But I also really love the fact that the last line is, you stole my heart, which is very clearly an echo of rooftops, you know, where Batman says, she stole the night. And I think that this is just a beautiful parallel of that issue from early in Tom King's Batman run, where she stole the night and Helena stole her heart. I think Janine did a good job. I really wish it was Clay Man because like Theo, I want Batcat to be in my hands now. <laughs> but I am glad they're trying to do the best they can and, you know, have it all be in one artist instead of having to have a fill-in artist or two. So... Clayman, stay healthy. Do the fastest work you can. Tom King, keep writing those scripts. We're waiting and we're excited. And if this was a taste, we're definitely here for it. Yeah, if we could have got 10 stories like this, that would have been a-okay. I, I mean, I wouldn't. that would instantly put it in my favorite of these specials. I mean, if we had 10 stories or even 8 stories just this good. You're going to see the perfect crime when I get Batman in my claws. <laughs> All right, our next story is The Catwoman of Earth by writer Jeff Parker and artist Jonathan Case. Catwoman and her henchmen are pulling off a stick-up at the Gotham Science Fair. As she revels in the take for the day, a UFO appears over the crowd. The ship's occupants, which include two males and a female, appear and announce themselves. Seeing Earthlings as their inferiors, they look to enslave the planet. Selina is having none of this, and she proclaims herself Earth's protector. This confuses the would-be invaders, as females are considered subservient to males. As one of the male beings attack... The Catwoman springs into action, using everything at her disposal to take out the aliens and their accompanying monsters and robots. 
Selena's prowess impresses the female alien, who has never seen a female act in such ways. Catwoman finally takes out the leader. Gracious for saving them, the crowd attempts to hand Catwoman the precious jewels as a reward for protecting them. It doesn't feel right, though, especially considering she's about to be arrested by approaching police. To her surprise, the female alien offers her a lift in the spaceship in exchange for teaching her how to be more like Earthwomen. They fly off as the male aliens are taken away in handcuffs. So what do we think of our fourth story? So, as I may have mentioned in the past, you know, Batman 66 got me into Batman. And for that, they have my thanks. But I was four at the time. And uh, I have since grown out of that. Let's also be clear that you were four in reruns. You were not four in 1966. Oh, that's true. Yes, I was four in reruns. I was not four at the time of original 66 release. I am not quite that old. And I just really haven't enjoyed the 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 66 and the Archie comics, 60, Batman 66 crossovers. They're just, it's a little too hokey for me. So these humanoid, large elf-eared pink aliens and Catwoman showing them what's up. It is not the comic I would have chosen. Uh, it is okay. It's a, a women power. Go, you go, girl. But not what I enjoy in my comics. I thought it was a nice little throwback to Batman 66, seeing this rendition as Lee Merriweather. That was Lee Merriweather, right? Yeah. But again, it, 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 it was... And, in the, you know, in the light of, you know, Batman 66, it was corny and, you know, meant to be funny. Um, and, you know, it met its goal, you know, does it put it high up on the list? No, it doesn't. But, you know, it, 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 it met its goal. I tend to agree. I appreciate Batman 66 for what it is, but my Batman is really... You know, Danny O'Neill and Frank Miller and, and Tom King, a much darker, more personal Batman, not satirical. And I think that this is a very fun story, but it's, and I would say it's even celebratory. It's celebrating the, the Catwoman mm -hmm. in the 66. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it doesn't have that personal touch that the last story had. But I mean, it, it's perfectly serviceable. I just don't, I'm not super impressed by it. So let's move to... Story five. Strange has it sealed in his vault. Well, in that case, I think we can strike a deal. I need a way into his vault, and I think you're just the girl to help. If you get me in there, I'll get your plant. Deal? Story number five. A Cat of Nine Tails. Written and drawn by Liam Sharp. Catwoman is looking to make a quick getaway after breaking into a vault, but she is stopped by Charlie, a security guard. She explains to him that there are nine ways that their interaction could end, and she begins to go through each one, which includes her killing him and he killing her. By the time she finishes the ninth option, Charlie faints, an option Selena hadn't considered, but she takes it. Uh, this one, I mean, it's a little gruesome. She goes through these nine options, and, like, three of them have him dead on the floor. One of them has her riddled with bullet holes, squirting blood. One of hers beaten up and bloody. And so it's a little icky. The end was kind of cute. <laughs> I like the end where he just passes out. So the ending was fun. And I like that, you know, she's using, instead of using violence, she's kind of talking her way out of it, basically 
scaring him to death just with words. So I I liked that aspect of it, but I just kind of wish it hadn't been so icky. I actually enjoyed this story. This is one of those stories that I wish could have been fleshed out a little a little more. But you know, the fact that they were able to get all nine uh, scenarios squeezed into just basically three pages was a was pretty fun, pretty 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 nicely done. Yeah, I I I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a little gory, especially that last panel with the last option of Selena just blood everywhere. Yeah, if if, if there was a story that could have been fleshed out, you know, into into something bigger, I would have been I would have been okay with that. But this this story was okay. A good okay. <laughs> yes, it was a good okay. <laughs> I thought this was fine. I like the rhythm of it. I really am impressed by the fact that Liam Sharp wrote and drew it and colored it too, I think. He's never been my favorite artist. Even when he was on Wonder Woman with Rucka, I thought his stuff was really detailed, but it never fully appealed to me. And that, that holds true here. I think it's fine. I just, I don't know. It, it didn't really move me, but it was also certainly not bad. And it wasn't as unnecessarily dark as the Dini story at the beginning. I do think it's, it's gritty, but Liam Sharp has really honed in on gritty. I think he did a lot of stuff for Image, and he's working on some very gritty stuff for the Green Lantern with Grant Morrison right now. So I think it's just sort of his style. And and for me, it really didn't look as much as Liam Sharp's work when you look at, you know, what he did with Brave and the Bold, or if you even look at what he's doing now in Green, I'm sorry, not Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern with, with Grant Morrison. I mean, if you look at those two series, the work look, the art looks pretty much the same, but it really doesn't look exactly the same in in this story. It's it's slightly different. So if you didn't, you know, read the the, the first page of the story and see that he he wrote it and drew it, I, I couldn't. I, I I really didn't tell from 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 the story. Yes, I think uh, you're absolutely right, Theo. There, there's a lot of skill here, and I appreciate the versatility that Sharp shows. So, let's move on to story six. Last night's attack connects Batman to the recent string of burglaries. A woman in a cat costume, presumably Batman's assistant, also... Assistant? Now I'm his assistant? In other news... Little Bird, written by Mindy Newell, drawn by Lee Gabbard. Inside the Beth Am Senior Residence, the news is discussing the story of a rare find from a flea market. One of the residents, barely conscious, suddenly awakens, saying nothing but the word mine. In another part of town, Selena is watching the same story. She too stakes claim to the artifact. As she steals it from the museum, it's housed at. She flashes back to a time when she sees it for the first time as a kid while living in a foster home. Batman confronts Selena about the missing artifact, which she denies taken. After some soul-searching, Catwoman sneaks into the senior residence to visit her former foster mother, who is near dead. She gives her one last kiss before placing an envelope in her hands. The following day, the residence administrator needs reads a letter, which states the final instructions of the patient care, and that upon death, the artifact is buried with her. 
So what do we think of this story written by Mindy Newell, who wrote the Catwoman miniseries in the late 80s that sort of set a lot of the dark tone that would follow Catwoman throughout the rest of certainly the late 90s and early 2000s? Do we know her foster mother from a previous run? Or is this a new character? It might be from the miniseries. I haven't read that one, so I don't know for sure. Okay. Because I think this one, aside from the Tom King one, probably gives the biggest attempt at having an emotional story. This definitely feels like one of the longest stories in here. It And it definitely, I think it's the only one that kind of refers to Selena in her uh, shaven head prostitute days. <laughs> I, I found it very interesting. It definitely refers to, I mean, the, the artifact that, you know, they have is a Jewish artifact. The foster mother is Jewish and, and she gives Selena an, another little name, Kavala. And it's, it's a, I really appreciate the attempt, but I feel like it's such a foreign concept. I really did mean to do some research to find out like what the significance of the artifact was. and what I can was actually important. tell you guys, Good. I work at a Jewish facility and this is called the mezuzah. It's a small uh, case, little box, in which they put some words from the Hebrew Scriptures in, and they bind it upon the doors. And it's a reference to the command in the Bible to have the Word of God, you know, all around you, and especially on doors. And it's, it's just sort of a way of marking the place as holy and and watched over by god and i walk by it every day in all the doors in my facility and it's it's touching i i think it's a nice way to remember their connection to their community and to god and that's really cool but that's something that's not really communicated in this and so i feel like if i was smarter or knew more history this would definitely would have would have struck me much more but i do really appreciate the the structure of the story, the art is absolutely gorgeous in this story. I feel like Batman's presence was unneeded and it was a little weird and definitely forced into the story. But I'm not going to complain because some of the scenes of them together is just really, really cute and I appreciate it. The weird, one of the scenes that didn't make much sense is her her dream with like Batman in a suit and her having like a counseling session with a Nazi. That was... It was a little weird, but, you know, it was kind of a weird, quirky story, and I I appreciate it. I thought it was very good. Well, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> Art was gorgeous, and it's definitely not one of the worst ones in here. It was definitely, it was made an attempt at telling a pretty in-depth story, unlike some of the others. Yeah, this is definitely a good story. I, mm-hmm. I, I and, and like you, Steph, I absolutely love the art. I, I'm a big fan of Lee Garbutt. As I was scanning the pages, especially when he got two the scene when Selena was younger, I thought I was actually reading an issue of uh, Skywood that he, he drew for image, but no, this, this was, the art was just absolutely beautiful. I love how he was able to go Matthew Kelly like, and, and do go back to year one in Selena prostitute, well, escort days, mm-hmm. but the story was written well. Uh, again, it it was, it was definitely emotional. It, 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 it kind of brought you to a different side of Selena that we don't always see in the pages of Catwoman or Batman. So yeah, this was definitely one of one of the better stories of, of this spectacular. It warms my heart to have all the love for Lee Garbutt. I think everyone probably knows that Lee Garbutt worked for the first year on Stephanie Brown's Batgirl series. And so I am, of course, extremely fond of his art. And I think this is 
probably my favorite art in the book. Even even more than the Tom King, Mikkel Janine story, I think this was just spectacularly drawn. I concur with Theo's review that the page where, you know, you just have her and one of her prostitution encounters was kind of unnecessary and felt very just felt exploitative, but the rest of it was was really just gorgeously rendered and so much detail and creativity in, in layouts and action and the way things flowed from panel to panel. The writing wasn't quite as strong as the art, but there was, was very good character in it and a lot of, as um, Steph said, there's there's really an attempt to connect with characters beyond just, you know, simple motivations. There, there's complexity there, and I appreciate that. About the whole no guns thing. I'm not sure I feel as strongly about it as you do. So we'll move on to Born to Kiln, written by Chuck Dixon, drawn by Kelly Jones. Catwoman swims through Gotham Harbor for a ship that contains a trinket she wants. She realizes she's not alone in wanting the emerald she's seeking as she finds multiple bodies covered in mud. In the captain's quarters, she finds that Clayface has beaten her to the prize. Still, Selina is determined to seize it from him. As they tussle, Catwoman finds herself at a disadvantage. She finally gets a reprieve by trapping Clayface in a kiln, turning it on, baking him until he becomes solid. This allows Catwoman to claim the prize to her adversary's detriment as she shatters him on her way out. So what do we think? Of this story. This definitely has the lust for life, does what she has to to get the gem. Bit of a quite, quite flippant and and uh, disregard for human. <laughs> or I guess Clayface is not human anymore, right? But, you know, she's not He's taking not. things too seriously. And I, I guess I thought that was kind of fun. It's definitely one of the funner ones, despite the fact that Clayface meets a very unfortunate end. So depending on how you look at that, it's actually quite disturbing. But um, I thought this was definitely one of the funner ones. Definitely a little bit of fresh air in this, what started as a bit of a slog. So I I liked it, the art. Oh, golly. There's a couple of panels that are quite lovely. Uh, I'm actually quite surprised how lovely some of these panels are. And then, oh, golly, there's that full body shot of Selena. <laughs> jumping through the air it looks like she's got two tiny watermelons in her in her suit that are just flopping around oh it's just awful but you know the fact that there are good panels in a chuck dixon not chuck dixon sorry mr dixon uh, in a kelly jones story is actually quite impressive so i'm giving it you know a thumbs up for that anyone who knows theo just like our our fair editor in chief Dustin knows that he absolutely hates Kelly Jones. I have n- never been a fan of of his, and you know that just totally you know took away from my enjoyment of the story, which was actually fairly nice. I think this could have been a really fun story had it not been ruined by me having to scroll through the panels of Jones's work. And just to add insult to injury for me, it, it's a story that has my favorite Catwoman outfit, and it's just totally ruined. Um, with the way, you know, Jones just depicts the character, whether it's the, the 
watermelons uh, that, that <laughs> Steph mentions, or if, if if it's the all back that just you know just erases the fact that she has a butt, you know, it's just it's just not nice. It's not good. I mean, but it's 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 funny. You know, I will say it is funny that the last two times we've now seen Clayface, he's either been dissolved into just eyeballs and and spine or he's been hardened in a kiln so it's not looking good for the for the clay man so i wish him well i will say this about the art uh just to you know append attend append append to what i said his his clay face is pretty good like when you look at him he's creepy and slimy and clayy and i think i think for clayface the art is actually very appropriate and works really well and there are i do appreciate what i hope was intentional but you know sometimes kelly jones gives selena you know an actual woman's body like she's got a bit of a pooch in the front (laughs) and and you know makes me feel a little represented in comics of course later on she's skinny again but yeah, I, I completely agree. I think Steph is right. There are some good panels. I like the panel when she traps Clayface in and makes a kissy face through the glass. I thought that was hilarious <laughs> and very appropriate. But on the whole, I just they got Jim Balant to do the pinup right in front of this story. Why not just get Jim <laughs> yes. Balant to do the whole story? I mean, I I don't understand that at all. I know Kelly Jones has been, you know, he's got a good relationship, obviously, with DC because he keeps doing miniseries and these special stories. He had one at Detective Comics 1000, so that's not something you just give to a random artist. But I don't, I don't enjoy it very much. Which, as Theo said, it's it's a really fun story. It's it captures Catwoman in the 90s perfectly. She's this adventuring, sort of greedy but not bad person. Who, who loves to steal shiny things and that that's fun that's catwoman and it's just i don't understand the choice to to use this art so it's it's kind of a wash that the writing's really good but the art's really bad so it ends up kind of in the middle for me <sighs> ah let's move on to the next story but if you are interested in doing a character then that character automatically becomes you for for a cat, my goodness, there's not a lot of research to go into in order to be a cat. Who the hell knows what a cat is going to be like? Because there's so many different types of cats. Story 8, Conventional Wisdom. Written by Will Pfeiffer and artist Pia Guerra. Selena stands at the entrance to BatCon, receiving instructions on her pending autograph session. Everyone seems oblivious to the guy laying across the floor. As she sits, she's joined by Bruce Wayne, and next to him are the Joker and other members of the Rogues Gallery. They reminisce about various events of comic book history, including those which involved Catwoman. Confused, Selina leaves and looks to find answers about what is going on. She finds another man beaten on the floor. He blames her for his condition. Selina is then dragged to a panel. Here, she begins to remember what's going on as she receives hints from questions asked of her. A device appears next to her as a fan in a Dr. Destiny outfit questions her about a recent theft. Realizing that the device is the key to it all, she throws it on the ground. Now awake, Catwoman prepares for one last battle with Dr. Destiny. Uh, If we hadn't just read the Little Gotham, where there was a Comic-Con fourth brawl, ball, wall breaking story. I might have thought this was a little 
better, but it's I liked the other one better. <laughs> the um oh shoot, help me with the artist of the little golf. Dustin Wynn. Dustin Wynn, thank you. Uh, so the art is fun in this. I mean, the art is fine. I mean, it's well done, house-ish style, I guess. And it's definitely trippy. You do are wondering along with Selena what is going on. Why? Why is why is this so weird? So I appreciate the trip, but I just don't think it was fun enough, and the payoff isn't too fun i mean it makes sense she's in a in a prison of a nightmare or whatever so i appreciate the attempt i appreciate the trip that we went on but i don't think that the payoff was necessarily worth it so i just think oh it's a little boring at the end and i just think that the dustin win win was cuter which is an unfair comparison i don't i don't like comparing considering someone else's story not good because someone else did it better but i just kind of wish i had been reading the dustin win story when i was reading this one Compare it with Steph because I, I I absolutely <laughs> agree. I think you know the, the art. Not saying that the art in this story was 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 bad. It wasn't, but you know, Wynn's art in uh, Little Gotham was definitely better. But you know, this is this is this was a good story, and 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 I appreciate how it it brought you through a lot of Selena's history. As Catwoman again, there were some drawbacks to her time in with, with Batman sixty six, and of course, my favorite panel was the guy asking the question in the uh, appropriately drawn purple outfit. Yeah, but Doctor Destiny, eh, that yeah, that 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 just made it quite a may of an of an ending. Yeah, the the story was okay. The ending kind of took away from it. It definitely took away from it, in my opinion. But it, it, it was definitely, the plot was, it was a very decent plot with a very bad ending. Yeah, I completely agree. I liked the, the historical aspect and the meta aspect, but it wasn't, it reminded me of the first Tim Drake story in the Robin special where it's a bunch of sort of gags or jokes, but it's not really a big story. And the ending, well, I get what they're going for and they don't really have room for more. It's like if Tom King's Batman run ended with nightmares, with Batman waking up and now he's going to fight and this is just, that's it. No, I I feel if you're going to set up a bad guy, you should set him up and then pay it off by having him defeated. Or if you want, having him win, although that would be weird and a non-Joker celebration issue. I just, mm, this story left a kind of sour taste in my mouth, despite the fact that it's perfectly competent. It's just not. I didn't feel happy at the end of it. It was definitely the best way I think they could have brought in the uh, Catwoman mask and not be a ridiculous story. <laughs> That's very true. As I said, I, I did yep. appreciate all that costume history that we got. That was cool. Yeah, it, it, it was just okay. <gasps> I think they want more. Let's give it to them. Next story, Addicted to Trouble, by writer Ram V and artist Fernando Blanco, who are actually going to be our team, starting with Catwoman number 25 in a couple months. Selena and Maggie finally take their leave of Villa or Villa Hermosa. Their travels take them through several states, each with various adventures, including a bar fight and other heists. As they reach their final destination, Gotham City, the sisters enjoy one last evening meal and laugh. 
The next day, Selena ponders her next move. So what do we think of Addicted to Trouble as a tease for our ongoing series? This reminded me that I stopped reading that. <laughs> I don't actually know what's going on in Catwoman. Um, so that was a little sad. And then I was just distraught when the cops find her bag that she left behind at the bar and her wedding dress is in it. Ugh! That made me upset. But overall, I mean, it was a well-taught story. I liked the sister bonding. I liked that Maggie kind of seems to be coming out of whatever comatose state she's been in forever but i mean and the art is the art is really cool i like the art uh it's well done probably get into a discussion about continuity and what the heck is going on and why is she with maggie in gotham when she's supposed to be on the top of a mountain saving bruce from hypothermia but whatever and when does the story take place and blah 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 i think Nah. I think I don't know. I don't know what to think. Yeah, this this I'm gonna I'm going to piggyback and, and mirror a lot of stuff Steph said. This was a very interesting story. It was a very quick read, you know, with regards to Selena and, and, and Maggie doing their cross country trek from Villa Hermosa back to Gotham. But oh man, there is there there are some plot holes in here that that I hope get gets fleshed out, you know, once Ram V takes over in issue twenty five. I mean, there's there's no mention of City of Bane, there's no mention of the mountain and finding Bruce. There's nothing. I mean, you get Selena sitting at the at the bistro and it's a nice pretty day in Gotham and it's like all of the events of 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 Batman that Tom King brought us through is is kind of missing so I'm I'm hoping that once um Ram V takes over uh, in issue 25 and 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 you know he's done pretty well in the other filling issues that he's done for Joel Jones so you know, I have no problem with him taking over the series moving forward, but I I really hope that that he fills in some of the holes because, of course, none of the filling artists between Joel Jones' last issue and when he takes over in twenty five are going to be doing that. As a matter of fact, she, she's still in Villa Hermosa uh, in those issues. So, yeah, we really need to have some holes filled here. I think that the problem with Catwoman is similar to the problem with Dick Grayson. They decided on what I think is an extremely uninteresting and unsatisfying status quo for both of those ongoing titles right around the same time, and both of them have gone on for a really long time without connecting to anything else that's going on. So Selena's just been doing her own thing in Mexico, even though she's also in Batman and has been in Batman since issue uh, 75. The one almost excusable thing about Nightwing is at least in all the other issues, they're like, yeah, of, of everything else, they're like, yeah, Nightwing has amnesia. He's not here right now. So at least they acknowledge that Nightwing is not around, whereas Catwoman is just literally two different people. Agreed. And I just... Yeah. 
this story is fun. I will not disagree. I haven't read a lot of Ram V, but he's sort of one of the new hot writers that DC's working with. Fernando Blanco has been a favorite of mine since Batman Eternal. I really like his clean lines, and he's got good storytelling ability. But this, and and I agree the with Steph. the The piece where Maggie seems to be getting better is is really nice. That's heartwarming. But this makes no sense with what's going on with Catwoman in Batman, and that is intensely frustrating. It it just seems so unnecessary. So. Yeah. It's a fine story. Yeah. It just symbolizes the frustratingness of the status quo right now. Yeah, and I will also say, you know, mentioning Maggie, you know, I, I did like, you know, the the Thelma and Louise feel of it <laughs> until uh, until the caddy uh, broke down and uh, they had to leave it. Uh, but yeah, it 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 leaves a, a lot to be desired from the standpoint of continuity and. Just answering those questions. All right, so let's do our final story. Why do you never listen to me? Sorry, Selena. I really was leaving town. I just needed some traveling money. The Art of Picking a Lock. Written by Ed Brubaker. Art by Cameron Stewart. Selena reflects on her childhood as she and Holly search for a friend. Holly picks up on a cab as Selena races across the city to catch up with them. The driver of the cab, dying from, a, from self-exposure to the Joker gas, drives the cab off the pier. Selena arrives just in time and immediately jumps into the water. She swims to the trunk where she picks the lock, freeing the trapped P.I. Sam Bradley for meeting his doom. Back on dry land, they chastise the rugged Bradley for trying to pursue the joke on his own. He realizes the error of his ways, but warns them of the joker's plan. Before asking for a cigarette, he tells Selena to contact her friend. So what do we think of this closer by the classic Catwoman team of Brubaker? who wrote the run in, I think, 2004. Yeah, it's immediately following Hush. He wrote it from 2004 to about 2006. Well, this is definitely the Catwoman that I'm probably the most familiar with. I haven't read everything, you know, or even most of it. <laughs> but, you know, she's the one that, that I had the most access to when I started with Catwoman stuff. So it was fun to see Sam Bradley, and it was fun to see Holly not being weird or sold out to... Talia or whatever is going on with her right now. I mean, it was kind of a cute. It, it you know combined her being kind of retrospective about her childhood, but also shows you know how much she can kick butt, but also what she loves doing or not loves doing, but what she ends up doing a lot, which is protecting her friends and having their back and doing anything she can to save them, even if it means you know putting herself in harm's way. So I like the characters in it. I like who she is in this. I like that it kind of just feels like you're in the middle of a story and you're just getting a small glimpse, but it's it's it has a beginning, a middle, and an end to this glimpse of the bigger story that we just have absolutely no idea what's going on. So I I felt it was a satisfying ending. I was pleasantly surprised by who was in it and what was going on. So I I liked it for the closer. Yeah, this this story was okay. It it was a little it was a little funny seeing Holly again, especially 
being a good girl this time instead mm-hmm. of driving Bruce crazy and, and, and driving the wedge between Bruce and Selena and killing all the people and having Selena take the fall for it. Yeah, but it was it was a it was a decent story. I, I was definitely surprised to see Bradley at the end. Yeah, not much more than that. It, it, the art was okay. I mean, it it it, it felt like a a Brubaker type type of story. So you know, nothing bad, nothing great. It it was okay. I would agree. It's nothing great, but it was really nice to see, you know, Brubaker come back. I mean, he usually really doesn't like doing this kind of thing where he comes back to superhero comics. He only does his own crime stuff and TV writing, but apparently Catwoman really means something to him. So it's really cool that he came back and I like the way he wrote it. The voice is really cool. The storytelling was nice. The twist at the end with slam was cool because he was a big part of Brubaker's run. I, I just, it left a good taste in my mouth in terms of the ending of the collection. So I, I definitely enjoyed this story a lot. Let's let's talk a little bit about the pinups. We have pinups by Babs Tarr, Ty Templeton, Steve Rude, Tula Lote, Tim Sale, Jim Balent, and Jay Lee. Did you guys have a favorite pinup? Balent. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was a very nice Balent, and it was really cool to see that a man who spent so much time in the 90s just defining Catwoman's look for so long got a chance to celebrate that, even if he should have gotten the story. I got well, one of my favorite is the Babs Tar one where she's like kissy face with what looks like what David, <laughs> the statue of David, and she's just adorned in these gems and jewels and she's shining, glistening, and she's wearing her new armpit suit with a little more side boob than I think is normal. But anyway, I just really like how how ethereal that one looks. And then the one that just I don't know why I love it so much, but the Hang In There Kitty by uh, Steve Rude and Matt Hollingsworth. That one just, I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. But it's the end of the week, hang, or I guess when, middle of the week, Hang In There Kitty Cat. But this time it's Selena dangling from a line. I just, I don't know. It just gives me a kick that someone as, as fancy and as, as elegant as Selena would stoop to such a silly gag. Just makes me laugh. I have to say my favorite is probably the Tula Lote one with sort of a classic 90s, no, sorry, uh, mid-2000s, the Darwin Cook design, but without the goggles. I love the lighting and the pose. She's looking off to the side and raising her arms. So it's got sort of that exuberant but also serious feel, very striking with the red background, the cats, and the red lipstick. I did like the Jay Lee one, but I don't like the modern design that Joelle Jones drew. And it, it kind of makes me sad because... Jay Lee drew the covers for my favorite Catwoman run of all time with Genevieve Valentine, where she becomes the head of the Calabrese crime family. And it's it's a very dark but very good story. But this was not using that classic costume, and it wasn't quite as impressive to me as the Tula Lote one. So that's my favorite. Do we have favorite covers? There were tons and tons of covers, including like eight by Scott Gamble himself. Do we like the normal cover by Joelle Jones or one of the decade variants or one of the the various store exclusives. I ended up with the Joelle Jones one, and I I like that one. Of all the ones that had in my shop, that was my favorite. But I did see the Jim Lee one online, and I did very much wish that they had had a Jim Lee one. So those were probably my two favorite was Joelle Jones and Jim Lee. Yeah, I I, I just stuck I, I stuck with 
Joelle Jones, I, I, I was a little disappointed that she wasn't more involved in the spectacular, considering, mm-hmm. you know, she she carried the book for the first 20 some odd issues for the most part. But that that was that was my favorite. And yeah, the Jim Lee one was pretty nice as well. I really loved the uh, Frank Cho one, which is the one I got. I love that costume because Tom King highlighted it in his Batman run in different ways with the green cape and the the strong eared look. I just, I really like the way he draws fabric and the lines are really thick and I like the thick lines. And I love the, uh, the lettering. It uses the 19... 19- so this is technically the 70s, but the, the lettering is from the 80s Brave and the Bold issue. And I, I dealt with that in my article that you can see on the site about all the different covers and their lettering. I, I really wanted to love the Del Otto cover, but I couldn't. I don't know. It, it, she just seemed, he just drew her a little bit too squidgyard for me. I don't know. It, something There was something off about it, but that... I really wanted to love that that cover, but I didn't. Yeah, I could see that. I, I did think these covers were a little weaker than, say, the Robin ones or the Detective Comics or the Action Comics ones. So let's give our rating. Out of five Batarangs, or shall we say five Cat's Paws, how many would we give the Catwoman 80th anniversary? Well, when you take into account that I really only liked, I don't know, three or four of the ten, and it was a $10 book... <laughs> I'd probably have to give it a two, two and a half, just because so much of it was a little underwhelming. Uh, I gave it two and a half on on the site and on rereading it for the podcast. It it it, it remains the same. I, I still only enjoyed about half of the stories, if that. And yeah, I'll leave it at two and a half. I'm going to give it a three and a half because I really love the Tom King story. And I liked a lot of the other stories more. I would say it's definitely one of the weaker collections in these anniversary ones. But there's, there's, especially on the art side, there's a lot of art I really loved in it. Even if the writing wasn't as standout as I think it should be for something like this. So three and a half out of five. I'm not great at math, but I think that makes it a three overall for our rating. About a three, yeah. Yeah, approximately. We're not going to do precise math yet. Two point eight three 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 three. Oh dear, the engineer strikes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I appreciate it. I just uh... you need to go one more decimal place. <laughs> no, no. It's three three repeating. I think is how you say it. Three three repeating. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to get to the Joker 80th anniversary 100 base super spectacular. So let's start with our first story. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? Scars. Written by Scott Snyder. Art by Jock. A boy lies in bed and watches a rose on his nightstand. It's a gift from his grandparents, one made of different animal hides. The boy sits up and cradles the rose. From the narration, we know that he's thinking about the animal hides and the thought of human flesh being among the assortments of hides. The boy flushes the flower, telling us he took a beating for it, but it was the most pleasurable beating. Years later, this boy has grown into an old doctor, and he is relaying this story to a client. The client is a GCPD officer whose mouth has been carved into a wider, grotesque Glasgow smile given to him by the Joker. The doctor asks the officer to put his mask on. He complies. The mask has a bunch of strings and stuff to try and heal the officer if he wears it. 
The doctor points that the officer is afraid of healing. The fear within the officer is that if he heals, the Joker will come back. The officer relays that the Joker somehow knew that his vanity was his smile. The doctor disagrees and affirms that the Joker is just a man, that this wasn't targeted or personal. He then goes on to speak to the Joker's big trick, one that involves tricking many of his victims into believing that he's more than just a man. One last time, the officer asks the, the officer to keep the mask on. The officer drops the mask to the floor, breaking it and promising to repay the masker, uh, repay the doctor. He then exits. The doctor calls Bruce Wayne, his benefactor, and lets Mr. Wayne know they lost another victim to the Joker's tricks. At home, the doc gets ready for bed and notices a rose, much like the one at the beginning of the story, sitting on a nightstand by his bed. He's bewildered by it. Suddenly, the rose fires acid into the doctor's face. Our last panel is of the Joker's hand reaching out from beneath the doctor's bed. So, before we get to our analyses, we have a guest who many of our longtime listeners will be very familiar with in terms of his love and passion and defense of Scott Snyder's writing. We were able to talk with Ed about what he's been up to and what he thought of this Joker story. Hey guys, it's Dio. So we're here for another special segment for our 300th episode of the TBU Comic Cast, and we have another special guest. Let's welcome back to the Comic Cast, Ed. Ed Hello, Hello everybody. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for for bringing me out of the uh, out of the bullpen for for a couple minutes. I appreciate it. Welcome so thank back. You. Thank you. So few questions we want to make sure that, that that you know we brought you back and i actually kind of begged for you so i'm a big fan i've been a big fan since well there's two you know one being the episode where we discussed batman issue 15 you went into your marvelous rant <laughs> of, of how wonderful of issue it was yeah i'm not even going to sugarcoat it but i think this is just junk it's sloppy and it doesn't do anything for me at all it puts you through six months of stuff and psycho pirate god like are we still doing do this with sky and then the one that cemented it for me was actually doing a monkey watch episode when the question was asked what was the one city you wanted to re retire to you remember what city that was retire was it my new orleans or my main rant New Orleans was the city, and that just cemented because New Orleans is my hometown. <laughs> oh, fantastic! I love New Orleans. Um, I go there as many times as I can. I mean, with COVID, I haven't traveled much recently, but every time I'm in town, I go to Crescent City Comics, and uh, yeah, I mean, I love New Orleans, man. It's it's. I live in Tallahassee, so it's you know five hours away by car. It's not that far. Yeah, it's not. That's not far at all. Uh, I love love I love the city. It's my. It's it's definitely a place. Yeah, you said, you know, which one? Well, I, I'm going to retire and split my time between Maine and New Orleans. So technically they were both accurate, but New Orleans is definitely my, my favorite city. Yeah, that's home for me. So so since leaving the podcast, what have you been up to? So, I mean, I left the podcast um, right after Steph came on board um, just because uh, my professional day-to-day -day career and my wife's career had both got a lot more hectic. Very fortunate for both of us, but we happened to receive promotions within 45 days of each other at our separate jobs. And, you know, I haven't been doing much in the world of 
you know, podcasting or, or anything like that or reviewing comics or anything anymore. Work's kind of settled down. It happens. You know, most of my staff's in place now for the past couple of years. So I basically left to be a full-time employee, full-time manager, and a full-time dad. My daughter was, was in her later teens. She's just turned 17 now. So uh, entering her senior year in high school. So that was, uh, I left to focus on some some personal stuff. Well, that's great. So have you, have you had a chance to, uh, in this extra time of not casting, have you been able to catch up on your, your reading of the comic books? So I've been reading comics. Steph may remember this about me. The rest may, may remember this about me, too, is I have a, a thing with comics. I always read the monthly or bi-monthly issues or bi-yearly if it's Doomsday Clock, right? <laughs> Just, just waiting, just to make sure, you know. I always did those because that's what we did for Comiccast. But my favorite way to digest comics has been in trade format. I really like reading episodes, you know, one through six mostly. I know they're different, but we know how trades try to be done. So I, I, I the original graphic novel and the collected edition are my favorite. So since I have been off, off cast, I've been going back to reading in trade. So I'm a little behind. I'm not quite up to date. And I'm still sitting around, you know, I, I still try to email Jeff Johns every, you know, so often and ask him when, you know, Gary Frank and him are going to sit down and get that Batman Earth One Volume 3 out so I could read that or the three Jokers would be fine. So, yes, it seems like all the stuff I've been looking forward to since the last time I was on Comic Cast, I'm still looking forward to because it hasn't came out. So, I mean, oh, there's boy. that. Well, you shouldn't have that much longer for at least three jokers to come out, and at least according from what everything they're saying, it's already done. Well, yeah, but so who like if you had to bet money right now that all three issues—I know it's supposed to be three issue max issues—all three issues of the three jokers is going to come out on time without a delay. How confident would you be in that bet? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> right. Right. Zero. Zero percent. Right. So. I remember when I was on cast a year and a half, two years ago now, and the last, so I, we were very excited for the three Jokers and Batman Earth One Volume Three. So I feel like I'm kind of in the same place. So I've been digesting things more in um, trade paperbacks and the OGNs when they come out, which has always been preferable to me. But sometimes I catch up on stuff when I can. But that's how I've been enjoying them. So, from what you've read of the Batman universe, what, what, how do you feel about the current state of it? So, King's gone. JT's been... I mean, everyone knows, and here we specifically reference my somewhat angry reaction to Batman number 50, or, or triumphant, depending on how you look at it. I'm like, this is the biggest junk I've read in a long time. I think that, that, that Tynion's been okay since he's came in. I know Joker War looks like it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out. It could be the summer of the Joker. I'm okay with with kind of where he's at right now and seeing where he's going to go with it. I felt that King was on the book for a really long time, and by the end it had just kind of not been where I wanted it to be. So I'm okay with the state right now. I would still like to see more interconnected stories. I mean, there's no secret people that have listened to me before, uh, and even Dustin for that matter. The bigger the story, the more I like it. I like the big stories. I was never someone who said, well, I can't believe I got to read this crossover with 50 different comics. I'm like, I get to read a crossover with all 50 comics. That sounds fantastic, <laughs> right? Like, So I like the bigger stories. Set pieces are cool. I like the character moments. Don't get me wrong. But, but let's do a big, you know, 
Snyder S fourteen issue two year series, and I'm I'm all down for that. So if if Joker War was the was a two year type thing, you know, on the levels of Nightfall and and No Man's Land, you'll be all for that. I like that, right? Like I've always liked that stuff. I mean. <sighs> I don't know why, but the, the the big epic story. I mean, think about it. So I don't know how often you guys go back and reread stuff. I'm a chronic rereader. Like I'm the kind of person, and I don't know if this is a positive thing or a negative thing, right? I'm the guy who looks at his comics and goes, "Ooh, I got the stack of comics that I should catch up on," or I could read Arkham Asylum 25th anniversary again. You know, maybe <laughs> I'll just grab that. You know, like, and I know it's not great, and I obviously like the new stuff. Like I'm, I'm. I'm I believe that every era of comics has something to give you, right? 80s, 90s, 70s, O'Neill, I mean, all of it. Like, all the way up to, to, to JT, even King. Like, I, I don't believe that any era is superior to the other. So I, I don't want to be the guy that's like, I only like stuff if it's 20 years old. You know, and that's that's not my thing. But, but I find myself reading older stuff. But what I go back to read is, I rarely go back and go, like, a perfect example. Uh, you go, Darwin Cook, uh, Ego. It's a great Batman story, Right. I don't go find myself rereading it. Do I find myself rereading something like uh, Nightfall or even, you know, even Court of Owls or something like that? Yeah. So I guess it's just personal preference. I'm drawn to those bigger stories. So if you told me we were going to get a two year, 30 issue crossover over 15 titles. Yeah, yeah I'd love it. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned, you know, wanting to see more interconnectivity with the with the Batman books. What else are you looking for moving forward from D.C. that seems to be in the state of flux right now i would like I, I would like them to not how do you say this politely I, I would like them to not reboot the world anytime in the next four or five years unfortunately After, i'm pretty sure they're going to i know right right the g5 or 5g or whatever we're gonna do or i know that may have got thrown aside but we've had a lot recently man i remember god i sound like i'm ancient here so like crisis events or, and if I guess I've always considered, I don't know how you guys come down on this. I've always considered Flashpoint a crisis event. What do you guys feel about that? I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's not a crisis, but it's a crisis, right? Uh, and then you could argue that I, you know, identity crisis is neither, but that's that's beside the point. So those big events which totally change the universe: Crisis on Infinite Earths, Final Crisis, you know, Flashpoint. Again, big stories. I love big stories, but they were supposed to be rare. We got the new 52, and then we got Rebirth, and now what we're looking at rebooting the whole thing again, probably what you guys hear what, later this year-ish. Is that kind of what I'm? What you guys think is going to happen? I don't know what they're doing. I mean, especially now that 5G seems to be done with before it started. So I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. And that's the thing. Like, I just... The, the cool thing about the DC universe that always appealed to me over Marvel, and I'm not a, you know, a Marvel hater per se, I just don't read it and I don't enjoy it, so I guess that makes me a Marvel hater, is is that the, the DC universe always was a one coherent story, right? right? Even with you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths or Flashpoint, when you wanted to redo the universe, you didn't just throw it away and, you know, and do a new universe. It was part of the story. And it just seems like recently we haven't been able to kind of build the universe to its fullest potential because we've been scrapping it and kind of redoing it too often. So I, the biggest thing I would like to see is a, a longer stretch of, of continuity where we're not breaking the bubble every time. 
That would be lovely. Would be nice, right? <laughs> for like at least a couple days, you know. Or at I least mean, keep the continuity in the same time period so that one book doesn't do one thing and another book does another thing. Right? Like how tough yeah. is that? You know, if you want to do listen, like I love Elseworld books, right? Like Gotham by Gaslight, anybody who remembers me, would I would harp upon that book. I love the the Elseworld stuff. And if you want to do a cool non-continuity, you know, slam a black label on it or whatever, you know? But don't that doesn't mean you got to wreck the entire continuity of the universe just because you want to say what if Batman, you know, insert here was vampire killed somebody, blah 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 blah, was from the 1800s, grew up in Russia, grew up underwater, Aquaman's cousin. It doesn't really matter, right? Like, but if you want to do something like that, I love the creativity. Just don't wreck the whole universe over right. stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So everyone who knows Ed knows Ed is a big fan of Scott Snyder. Um. So we, uh, so part of the cast, we are reading uh, the Joker Idiot special, and awesome. uh, one of the stories, actually the first story, uh, is a story from your favorite Scott Snyder. So sure. were you able to uh, take a look at it, and if so, what are your thoughts? I did. Now I I, I read it. Uh, thankfully, it was. <laughs> It was the first one in the 80, 80 issue, uh, 80 page giant, because uh, I grabbed the copy before we got on here and I'm like, oh God, which please tell me they, because you know, sometimes those 80 pages, 100 pagers, like they're not the best laid out. It's very difficult to find anything, right? So I was very happy that it was the first one. But besides that, you know, Jock's the artist on this one, right? And that's, you know, Black Mirror, him and Snyder did, which, you know, I know Steph's yeah, opinion on this. Else. But it's I great. don't mind Black Mirror. No, you don't Black Mirror. You were okay with, right? I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah, that was fine. Uh, Ian, I Black like Mirror Ian. is the best thing <laughs> Snyder's <laughs> ever done. Really? That's that's a bold statement. I mean, I think it's great. I think I think Jock's art is great, right? I think this very much reads like it could have been. To me, this feels like, and I'm not talking about visually, but the tone of the story very much feels like the Joker of Endgame to me. Kind of that scene where at the, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, you should, you know, stop listening to me talk about it, I guess. This scene at the end where the Joker is under the doctor's bed, very reminiscent to me of when he's underneath Commissioner Gordon's bed in Endgame, you know? There's also some uh, references in here to the man who calls himself the monster, you know, the when Snyder was talking about, is he immortal, is he not, type thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt like it was very Snyder. And thankfully, with a small page count, we didn't have to see how the story would get wrapped up. I mean, it was just kind of a fill-in. So I could see this in the in-game universe, the in-game timeline in a way. If, the, if this had been a, a side story in that story, it, it feels like it fits to me. What did you guys think? Did you guys get to read it? Yeah, I did. But I am <clears throat> not the biggest Snyder fan. So I'm... That's okay. <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to... Lee that be. It was okay uh, compared to some of the other stories in the spectacular. It was definitely better, uh, but there's something about Snyder's style that doesn't doesn't work for me. And I guess it's because you know, like you mentioned, it's he, sometimes when he writes, he doesn't wrap up a story. Oh some, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes I just like to get to the end. What happens at the end? let it in and not leave it open for uh, speculation. And I see, I think that goes to style we like, which is funny because earlier we talked about, you know, I like the giant long story, right? 
So it, to me, it's always, it, you know, it's like when you're traveling somewhere and you, you stop and have a, a scotch in the airport or whatever, right? You got to enjoy the, the destination, the travel to me as well, you know? Um, and with Snyder, I mean, there is definitely, there's no doubt that he's one of my favorite writers. Everyone knows that. And, and it's cool that you, if you don't like him because that's the cool thing, right? Everyone's got something that, that they speak to them. That's the whole thing about lit- literature and, and comic books, I guess, specifically that makes it cool is that so many people with so many different styles out there, there's something that's going to speak to everybody, right? But if you ever read his book of short stories that he wrote called Voodoo Heart, it's actually almost comical because it's, I don't know, I can't remember 10 or 12 short stories or whatever it is, but literally everyone just kind of ends with no ending, <laughs> you know? Um so it's definitely part of his style. No doubt about it. Well, you think it, that's hit the way he does like horror because this first story is definitely like a horror story. Um, well, you don't have creepy clowns under your bed killing you, and it's not being a horror story. But yeah. um, do you think the whole that's 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 why that's his style? He goes more for the creepy, unknown, fear of the unknown, fear of no ending kind of storytelling. I think there's some of that. I think there's also a bit of him, which, and I think any great author in a serialized format does this to some extreme, but I think he does it more than most. Uh, I mean, all the if you think even like a, a, a Johns or even a Neil Adams back in the day, don't don't count his later stuff because Odyssey is nonsensical. But like <laughs> some of his older stuff, um, gettable. It's 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 it's. Got some great art, but I literally read that book twice. I'm still not sure what happened. You know, Snyder is suffers from, and obviously I love his writing, but he suffers from a bit of planning for the next story. You know what I'm saying? Like this one has got seeds for this one, and this one's got seeds for this one. And Court of Owls is cool, but what else can we do with them? Black Mirror is great. Where did the sun do sun go from here? Where does Jim Gordon Jr. go? So he does have a bit of that. Now it is advantageous. Uh, when you're writing a serialized format to do that sometimes. Uh, but but eventually you have to get to an end. And I feel like on his Batman run, that it, by the time it was all said and done, I think he, we mostly got payoff. But I do feel like he likes to plant those seeds a little bit. And it can, you know, I remember Stella <clears throat> on Zero Year, I thought she was going to have a breakdown because I didn't. she didn't feel like that story was ever going to end, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, I, I could... I could certainly see where his 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 writing would would annoy somebody. You know what I mean? Like I get that. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us, and and we we hope to have you back one day, maybe for three fifty or four hundred, and and somewhere well, in between. Or you know, hey guys, anytime you want me on, just let me know. Uh, email me. That's how I live. I don't really do social media, but. And if, if there's ever a Scott Snyder story in Batman or something in the peripheral and you want me to be your special Scott Snyder consultant, right? Well, Ian, Ian well here's is, a question for you. Here, here he comes. If we either do a special episode or we run into another lockdown situation where we have to do retrospective. So for the last two months, because we had new, new comics, we sure, did yeah. uh, trade paperbacks. Would you be interested in doing a death metal retrospective when that comes out in trade sure i'd love to yeah <laughs> we'll need well, someone absolutely. to advocate for it yeah i mean <laughs> I oh it'll do, be it'll just, be great I just knew ian was gonna come and ask you your thoughts about snyder doing nightwing i don't know why 
Oh, well, actually, listen. that one, I'm going to be the cheerleader because I really hope that's good. Now, I, I'll be curious t- t- for that, you know. Also, there was a point where I threatened to have like a 800 number set up and let people call in and tell me why they hated, you know, Snyder's death, death of the family, and I was going to try to defend it for five hours. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, anything like that is fine. But no, I would, yeah, no, guys, definitely. If you guys are doing retrospective, or not just about Snyder, but any any story, and you think that my voice would be helpful in the cast, I would be help, helpful and love to come on anytime. So. I just want to personally thank you guys for continuing Comicast. I think one of the great things about it is how it's evolved over time and had different hosts over the years. And, you know, you guys got your voices on it and you guys have been great. And uh, just thank you so much for continuing the Comicast and giving all of us out there uh, a chance for, you know, to listen to to people talk about Batman comics that we love so much. I, I personally appreciate it quite a bit. Well, we appreciate the trailblazing you did for all those years on the cast and very much appreciate you coming back. No problem. And seriously, if you guys ever, ever, ever just bored and, and want to bring the old man to punch on or whatever, just let me know. I'd be happy, happy to come on, everybody. And hopefully, me and Dustin will eventually be returning when, I don't know, whenever we do that thing. <laughs> we do hope that. So, guys, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ed. Um, Thank you. No problem. Hey, Steph. Good seeing you again. Good seeing you. Guys, thanks. See you. And we will now give our thoughts for the story. Steph, what do you think of Scars? Well, like I briefly mentioned uh, when we were talking to Ed, is this definitely has a horror story vibe. It's got a creepy clown under the bed. It's Joker apparently knowing his victims very well, knowing their weaknesses, knowing their history. I didn't like it, but I mean, it's it wasn't, it wasn't because it was a bad story or poorly written or even the art. Uh, it's just not a story I would choose to read. I mean, I just, oh, Joker. It's it's very well done. And I like it. Kind of like The Dark Knight. I hate that movie. It's very well done. It was worth watching once. And I'm good. <laughs> no. I'm good with my with my. I've seen it more times than once, but I wish I'd only seen it once. It's just, it's, it, it hits me in a place I don't like to be hit, I think. And I guess in that way, I mean, it's a very well-crafted story, but it's just so icky. I just can't get over that. Oh, oh, Steph. (laughs) Yeah, this was, this was a, a typical Scott Snyder jock story that you know kind of reminds me of the horror of uh their witches series yeah it's not a story that i was too crazy about very icky uh again you know for what's supposed to be a a celebratory uh spectacular and and this is kind of what we get so i mean it is what it is it's it's what these two do a lot in in their storytelling um so it's it's definitely not my cup of tea so i'll just i'll just leave it at that this story i think highlights both the best and the worst quality of snyder's writing he is very good at these poetic sort of philosophical explanations of things although scott over on the website didn't like that part as much he's also very good at getting really impressive stuff out of his artists particularly jock and i think jock does fantastic work here very evocative very powerful 
it also has some of his worst traits. He's he's very wordy, not necessarily it's really not necessary that he's quite as wordy as he is, and his ending is just awful. It does not make sense that the Joker knows any of these things. And it's very clear to me that Snyder thinks Joker does know these things. I don't think Snyder necessarily thinks Joker's more than a man, but he writes him as more than a man. He's always sort of given Joker exactly the powers and exactly the knowledge he needs to be the most scary because for Snyder, he is exactly what the officer thinks. Joker is everything Snyder fears. And that's sort of interesting, but it means that his stories are almost entirely symbolic and make no sense internally. It makes no sense for the Joker to be able to get a flower that reminds this guy of, you know, his childhood when it's like 40 years ago and then be under his bed and reach out through the door and just it's it's not a good ending. It's it's very silly. It doesn't make sense. It's very evocative the way that Jock draws it, but it's nonsensical and that's disappointing from the interesting setup that he gives with this idea. And I would say that all the the narration is a celebration of who the Joker is and I would say that I'm really torn throughout this entire collection because I hate the Joker, but I think that he's clearly an important character for Batman and for DC and for fans, and I think he deserves a celebration. I just am not particularly interested in celebrating him because he loves to kill people, and I don't like villains to do that. So, let's move on to our next story. (laughs) You know, it's funny. This reminds me of a joke. What Comes at the End of a Joke Written by James Tynion IV Art by Mikhail Jenin In the dorm room at Snyder College, Dean Bob is having a heart-to-heart with Alexis, a student about her distasteful choice of clothing for Dress Like Your Hero Day. He tells her it's provocative, to which she replies, No stuff. Dean Bob pleads with her to be reasonable as he's trying to approach this as if he was her friend. Alexis rejects this notion, citing that he's only doing this because the school is scared that she she wants to celebrate the Joker. She knows that they want to approach it from the right angle, that she's maladjusted and in distress, that it's too frightening to consider that she might have a dangerous perspective on her own volition which would force the school into a position of punishing a student for free speech. After her rant, Alexis blows cigarette smoke into the dean's face. The dean is about to reprimand Alexis for smoking indoors when an involuntary laughing fit overcomes him. He asks her what she's done, and Alexis informs him she found a very complicated recipe on the internet. As Dean Bob's body goes into a Garish state of paralysis. Alexis takes a picture with her phone and then goes over to her makeup stand. As she's put on, as she puts on her punchline makeup, she tells the dean that she's going to dress him up and hide him in her roommate Sarah's bed. Sarah's brother knew people involved in the laughing gas attack, so it's a touchy subject for her. It's revealed that Sarah was the one who reported Alexis. Hiding Dean's Bob, Jokerized body in Sarah's bed would be the perfect revenge. Punchline asks Dean, asks Dean Bob if he ever let himself feel anything or have his own opinion beyond what the boy tells him. Dean Bob asks Alexis why she is the way she is. 
She says that all her life, people in the media around her have been telling her that she can be anything she wanted without considering that someone who wouldn't want to be a good person. This whole world you built is a joke. And I, I'm the punchline. As Dean Bob falls to the floor, punchline tells a hidden figure that she's proven that she's serious. Joker then reveals himself. So what do we think about this much-awaited origin story for James Tynan's new creation, Punchline? So I kind of skipped over who the... Did I skip over? Yeah, I think I skipped over who the writer was for this one. I just kind of went in blind. So I actually... And I didn't really catch that this was Punchline to start because I didn't think she was this young and in college. And with the glasses, like, I really was kind of thrown a little bit for the loop. So I actually was taking for a bit of a ride in this one. I was first thinking, you know, she's just a troll. She's trying to mess with people, you know, wearing Joker outfits when her roommate is sensitive about it. And then just going on to realize that, no, no, she's actually a, she's, I mean, trolls are bad people, but she's a really bad person. And the fact that she ended up being punchline was, I don't know, I thought that was a pretty fun reveal. And getting a little bit more of her history and just realizing that she she's maybe not as psycho as as Joker, but she's definitely, you know, a psychopath. <laughs> she's definitely not not sane and has no moral compass. Whichever one of those psych psycho, psychopath, psych psycho whichever one of those has is the no moral compass and the no right or wrong morality. That's what she is. And I know I thought it was I thought it was a fun story. Obviously, it's not a feel good story. (laughs) And it gives us a little more look at what's going to go on in Batman or at least who Punchline is. So I appreciated that. And so overall, I I did like this story. And Joker wasn't in it that much. Yeah, it was it was a fun story. It was definitely it was definitely a nice, quick origin of, of how we get punchline you know she is she is definitely an opposite of the joke in that she seems to be other than being a sociopath she definitely seems to be in her right mind very sadistic very cunning and and but also very logical yeah it was you know it, it, not not to just repeat a lot of what step what steph said it was a very good story to bring to light how punchline came to be. And again, it wasn't, and he was able to do it without much joker. (laughs) I thought that that was really clever. I think it's very cool to have a celebration of Joker through his inspiration rather than necessarily him directly acting. And I thought that was quite intelligent of Tynan to do. I really like the thematics of this story. The, the idea of, college young people being radicalized by various destructive ideologies and i think that even though i know tynan is a man of the left he didn't connect punchline directly to any current ideology he wasn't trying to demonize any political opponents because i think it's clear that violence and destruction and a desire to change the world to fit our own desires and trample people who don't agree with us is really rampant and it, it doesn't have a side. It's just people trampling each other. And I think 
Tynan really hit something there. That th- this story clearly touched an ideological or not a, an intellectual nerve for me. It made me really think, and I appreciate that a lot. I, I usually think of Tynan as much more a fun sci-fi continuity comic book fan, and I think he is really good at this. But this made me think he actually has some some real empathy and some real thought that he can put together in in a very intriguing story. So I am interested to see if he actually does more with Punchline along these lines. I know he's promised that he's not going to be killing off any of his new characters, which I don't mind. I don't like killing characters, but I may end up hating Punchline if she kills a character I really like. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But for now, I think her origin is extremely intriguing, and definitely this is my favorite story of the bunch. She is wearing purple. Maybe she'll want to get rid of some purple competitors. Oh, you know they're not going to do that because then they'll know I'll fly all the way to L.A. and storm the office. <laughs> We're uh, talking about spoilers. Yes, I, I think everyone do that. Not Catwoman. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's move on to the third story. Without Batman, crime has no punchline. Story three, Kill the Batman by writers Gary Huita and Greg Miller and artist Dan Mora. Following the death of Batman, Lois Lane gives us an exclusive look at the Batcave. She interviews Alfred, who is the one who revealed Batman's secret identity to the world after his passing. He did it because he wanted the world to know of Bruce Wayne's sacrifice, to know of his deeds beyond billionaire playboy. Lois Lane interviews other people in Batman's life, including Jim Gordon and Superman. At Batman's memorial service, a fully healed Judge Harvey Dent speaks to his many good deeds both as Bruce Wayne and Batman. In the crowd at the memorial service, a dismayed Joker lurks. He's wearing a trench coat and a hat, and he has a bomb strapped to his belt. Mr. Freeze speaks to Batman's works, noting that while he fought Batman behind the scenes, Bruce Wayne worked to help Nora. Free says that he would have known that Batman and Wayne were one and the same. He wouldn't have given Batman the cold shoulder. The crowd laughs, which bewilders and angers Joker. They should be mourning their dearly departed Dark Knight. Wonder Woman speaks next, and the Joker begins to ponder what this all means to him. He looks at the smiling faces of the crowd, upset that no one is sad. Then he realizes that this means there's no place for him anymore. But what else is a fiendish, merciless, psychotic, cold-blooded maniac who only gets off on tormenting others supposed to do, he asks himself. We cut to the Joker working at the Gotham DMV, where he tells a client that the client has the wrong form, damning said client to the back of the line. I liked this story, and there's a few reasons. One, this is obviously an alternate universe, because one, Batman's not dead. Two, Lois Lane is not a tv reporter she's a newspaper reporter and three harvey dent's not a judge and if he had been healed there's no way in the world they would ever hire him for you know the justice system he would be in prison but aside from that uh i thought it was kind of it it addressed a question that i think we ask a lot like why they can't kill off joker or you know in joker's mind why don't (laughs) why don't the comic books kill off batman it's because you know then he would have no enemy, like that's the, the whole shtick is that that they feed off each other, and as one gets stronger, the other has to has to get stronger to to match because they are the ultimate rivals. And so, I think short story, 
that asks that question, the ending gag is actually pretty funny. And I think that it does a good job celebrating celebrating Joker and asking a question that we do ask a lot on, on the other side. What would Batman do if Joker was gone? But also, what would Joker do if Batman was gone? So I, I appreciated the story, and I liked that it was more cerebral than icky. <laughs> Yeah, this, this this was a fun story. It it it, it answers the question as to why it, you know we've seen in in various formats and various continuities of Batman. We we hear in one way or another that the Joker doesn't want to kill the Batman. That they they destined to do this forever. So we now see why he wants to do this forever. Because if he ever kills off the Batman, there's nothing left for him to do. Definitely a a. a, a fun story. I absolutely love the art. Art was very beautiful. Nice coloring throughout. And on some of the panels, I almost thought I was looking at a Greg Capullo drawn story. But all in all, it was still it was still great. But it was fun. I thought it was okay. I didn't I wasn't quite as enthralled by it, but in general, I'm always going to have just that barrier of the Joker turns me off. I think it was a lot of good jokes and a lot of fun ideas in the terms of the what ifs. And uh, the art was quite good. I, I don't really have a whole lot more to say about that one. So I'm going to move on to <laughs> introducing the Dove Corps written by Denny O'Neill, um, who we already highlighted, but this is another um, celebration, so celebration of his life and work. And he did write the only Joker solo ongoing series. So it's very fitting that he wrote a piece in the celebration 40 or 50 years later. Artist by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. The Joker is reading a newspaper article about the United Nations forming a Dove Corps for non-lethal military missions. In need of a challenge and a change of scenery, he joins up. In Guatemala, Joker tags along as they free hostages from guerrillas. Uh, that's uh, the freedom fighters or or asymmetrical warfare fighters rather than uh, the animals, because this is the DC universe where there is guerrilla city. So, <laughs> while resting, they mention that they're serious about using non-lethal message, and Joker is surprised. He thought that it was just a scam to get money. The next day. The Dove Corps and Joker assault the gorilla base. Joker ha- uses his super itch cannon to win the day without killing anyone. The members of the Corps are so thrilled by their success, they award Joker with an official membership and a button. Joker then shoots all of them to death. I'm flattered, but killing is so much fun, he says. So what do we think about Denny O'Neill's story here? I think there's one more coming out, but this is one of his last published works. It was definitely random. It definitely had, from my expectation of Joker, which is definitely more like, like I said, Batman 66, Batman the Animated Series. So this definitely has like the randomness and the why in the world did you do that? Why would you join the Dove Corps that doesn't use violence when you love violence? Well, you know, he wants to challenge himself. So I thought it was quirky. It definitely has the mom Joker ending where everyone is dead. So that's, you know, at least there. 
But overall, I was not disappointed by the story. I thought it was sec- exceptionally weird and definitely had me reading pages twice just to make sure I didn't misunderstand something. <laughs> and um, the art is good, fine. I mean, cartoony and definitely a little over the top without being Kelly Jones. I think I liked it overall, but, you know, it was strange. Yeah, this this was I, I really liked the story. If if. If you want if you want to know how Danny O'Neill wrote the Joker when he did the the classic series, this 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 will do it for you. Or you can always go pick up the uh, the facsimile uh, issue that came out a few months ago. In hindsight, you know, no, knowing with the recent events, it, it's kind of sad when you see the name on on the page as as Denny being the writer. But this was this was a fun story. I've always been a fan of of Denny O'Neill, but I've also been a fan of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Yeah, yeah, Denny's gonna be missed. Yeah, he's gonna be missed. Now I'll, I'll leave it at that. I thought it was very appropriate given O'Neill's long-standing pacifism after his service in the Navy, and he was very disillusioned with the wars, not necessarily with his country, but with the choices that they made of how and where to send their troops. So it was nice to see that theme come back, that philosophical belief he really held. And the one thing that I was a little annoyed with is because it's a Joker story, he has to kill everyone and win in the end. And I I just don't like that. I don't like stories where villains win, but I think it's perfectly appropriate for the collection and the context, and I think it is definitely funny. I just, I'm not a fan of villains winning. But if you have to have a story where the villain wins, Denny O'Neill is the one you should get to write it, because this was great. Wow. I completely redecorated, didn't I? (laughs) I wonder what Harley would think of the new color scheme. Story 5, The War Within, written by Peter J. Tomasi and artist Simone Bianchi. Batman fights his way through a funhouse of horrors. When he finally fights his way to the Joker, Joker shoots him, then dons his Batsuit. This one was... I did not like this one. (laughs) Like, the art is very... The artist, you can tell, is very talented... But I just didn't even know what was going on. And there's all these jokers talking to himself through the whole thing. I don't know. I didn't really care. And the end is icky. And he's got green lipstick. And he's wearing a bullet-riddled batsuit. And he has weird Medusa hair. I just... I don't know. I don't even know what the little monologue speech bubbles are i find myself not caring and there was they were so short and so far apart i just i don't know i didn't care yeah i I think what what really turned me off to the story is the fact that there is no dialogue uh other than the 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 thoughts uh you know but the fact that there's no dialogue between any of the characters um you know i I quickly scanned these pages the art was nice, um, definitely gory, especially when you get to that that last panel when you see the joke in this in this oddly 
looking self with the Batman costume on. Yeah, this 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 wasn't for me. Yeah, considering one of my favorite things about Tomasi is his dialogue banter. To have a comic with no dialogue is just so distressing. <laughs> I think at this point I am convinced that Tomasi's not very good at writing short stories. I think he needs the space to set up some dialogue context and then actually execute the dialogue because he's written a story in almost every single one of these collections and every single one of them has been the same. It's been very minimal words, mostly narration of some sort and mostly splash pages. And that I've said it before. I'm really frustrated. I don't think it's interesting as an artist showcase, sure, it's fine, but I don't like the structure. I don't think it's interesting. I don't think it demonstrates a lot of engagement. So this this really one did not work for me. And as Steph said, it's a very grotesque and, and disgusting final image that I wasn't into because I don't like seeing Batman lose to the Joker. Tomorrow, all the papers were saying is that the great Joker was found blown to bits in an alley alongside a miserable little nobody. <laughs> kind of funny. Ironic, really. See, I can destroy a man's dreams, too. The Last Smile, written by Paul Dini, art by Raleigh Rosmo. Joker wakes up screaming in bed next to Harley Quinn. He's just had a nightmare, and it's a recurring one he's had for a while now. In this dream, Joker is sent to Blackgate because of his insanity plea finally didn't work. He's on death row, preparing for his end. He's dismayed that his audience is the common rabble and not the A-listers of Arkham. When he gets to the chair, the helmet is slapped onto his head without a sponge to lessen the pain. Right before the jail guards throw the switch, Batman appears and, start, and starts cackling madly. More Batman appear, and they're all laughing wildly, tormenting the Joker. At the bar, Harley relays the nightmare to Poison Ivy. She tells Ivy that she loved the Joker then, to which Ivy responds by talking about dreams being the window to the soul. That dream is why you stayed so long, Ivy said. No, it's why I finally left, Harley responds. I wasn't in it. So what do we think of Paul Dini doing basically a Harley story? I liked this one in that didn't really like a lot of the other ones. I mean, it's a nightmare. So in that sense, you know, Joker is free to do whatever he wants. But it's got lots of fun little Joker gags in it. Like his last meal is a pie that he then throws in the face of the chaplain, which I actually thought was pretty funny. And the fact that, you know, he's bowing to the inmates of Blackgate before he, you know, he's taking the final bow, the final curtain. And, you know, just all his little fears that, you know, he isn't the center of attention with the ones that matter to him. Like like he said, the A-listers, the people at Arkham, it's just these nobodies at, at Blackgate. And so it's just he wants to be famous. He wants to be the center of attention. And he wants Batman to, I don't know, I guess be afraid of him. And so it's just all the things that make Joker scared. And it's interesting that they mention the sponge. I wonder if Joker is afraid of elongated, like, having his death be drawn out. He wants to go quickly. And so that might be a little insight into the man we know so little about. You know, he is afraid of death. Or he is afraid of pain, maybe. 
but I know I thought for a nightmare it was it was gruesome and you know dreamy enough that it made it made sense because it's a nightmare and just the fact that at the end you know it's Harley getting the last dig in you know I wasn't even in the dream <laughs> that's why I left and I just I, overall I think I I did I did like the story and the art is crazy good crazy I think good crazy the colors are definitely bright <laughs> the the colors actually what made the, the art the best for me mm-hmm. uh the story was good it was a fun story definitely a, a, a Harley story that kind of focuses on the Joker, but it's definitely a story about Harley. But yeah, this art was beautiful from the standpoint of how the colors really, really brought out the the dream aspects of it. Seeing that it, that it was a Paul Dini story, I was wondering if at some point we were going to get some some type of animated series type of quips. We didn't. But yeah, this, 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 this was okay. You know, I enjoyed I enjoyed the art better than I enjoyed the story, but the story was was nicely written as well. I thought it was nicely written as well. I thought it was much more enjoyable than the Catwoman story that Dini did. It was a bit odd, but understandable that Dini would celebrate uh, another inspiration from Joker, the original inspiration that really stuck, which of course is Harley Quinn. He's always said that he wanted Harley to end up with Poison Ivy, and so he sort of fulfills that wish with this story, which is kind of cute. I thought the art was nice. I like Riley Rosmo's style. It's often weird, but it's always very unique and energetic, and I appreciate that. Ooh, say hello to your birthday clown. So I say sewer. I hardly know her. Our next story is Birthday Bugs by writer Tom Taylor and artist Eduardo Rizzo. Joker finds a boy pulling legs off bugs. The boy is excited, thinking Joker is the clown his father got for his party. In fact, Joker wanted to kill the boy's father. He asks the boy if he always removes parts of animals, and the boy says yes, it's more fun if they try to escape. If you kill them, then you can't play with them anymore. The Joker is impressed, stays, and entertains the guests with non-lethal, but certainly uncomfortable, clown antics. Later on, Sergio's dad comes home, finds the Joker, and the Joker tells him that he has learned from his son. He cuts off the father's fingers on his non-dominant hand for missing his job, as Sergio is one of the Joker's henchmen. He leaves Sergio with only one hand, similar to how his boy likes to play with bugs without limbs. So what do we think of birthday bugs so i truly and honestly did not read who wrote this story and tom taylor is one of my favorites and this story actually was one of my favorite stories i think it delves into issues that that are just so important for us as a society to pay attention to like I know so many little boys that probably have done this to to bugs <laughs> and you know that point there is no maliciousness like little kids they just really don't understand like what is death what is like it takes a really special kid to have like just empathy for 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 creatures i think i think that's something that needs to be taught and learned and so here we have a little boy that obviously is growing up in a home with no mother figure that we can see his father is a 
henchmen, so we can assume that there's not too much healthy home life. So this kid is just probably doing the best he can with no guidance. And so I just think it's so interesting that the Joe, he sees that and he, he leeches on that. And he, he presents himself as, a, as a, someone that can torture bugs with the kid. Let me do the activity that you like with you. And so it really just kind of shows how the Joker can be charming. Like if he taps into your, into your crazy, he can relate to you and you can maybe like him. And I think that's why Harley likes him. And that's why this kid kind of likes him. And then Joker does go out of his way to very, very horribly, violently, and maliciously get a party together for this kid because he now likes this kid because it's a little future Joker. And it's, it was just so interesting. And I really just appreciated how it just shows how, how Joker is able to manipulate people and, and how he taps into them and how he, you know, even. One of my most interesting things I know about Hitler is that he, he was very charismatic. Women love women who weren't, you know, afraid of him. Loved, really liked Hitler. He he had a way of of drawing people to him, and in that way, you know, you have Joker who is fictional, but also very very evil. But he has a way of with the people that he wants to, he taps into the things that they can bond with him over. And I just thought that was very interesting and definitely dark. This is not a happy story. This is not a happy story. There's, oh boy, you see all the fingers, all the fingers that get chopped off, though you get to see them all. But I just... (laughs) But I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about this story. So I just thought this was so interesting and a really, really smart and clever look at at Joker and just how smart he is and how evil he is. And I, I didn't, I don't love it. Like, like, you know, Ian said, Joker is icky. Nothing he will ever do will be my favorite, but I did really appreciate the psychology of this, of this uh, story. I'm done. now. So (laughs) this is further proof that there isn't a story that Tom Taylor cannot write. (laughs) I've always been a proponent of just, putting him on anything Batman, all Batman. And I still believe that. But this was a very cleverly written story that kind of gives you an inner look at who the Joker is. Tom Taylor can write anything, you know, and I will read it. I will pick it up. What I found a little interesting was in, in Riso's Riso's art, particularly in how he drew the Joker. You know, typically we've always seen the Joker, you know, with the permanent smile, you know, the scarred smile on his face. And and in and in this story, the Joker isn't drawn that way. The Joker, the smile is makeup. You can see when when he's just looking or if he's frowning, you can see the lips form the smile and the red is still there. Uh, so I I found that quite interesting take on the character. But I really liked the story. The story was, was nicely written. And again, put Tom Taylor on anything and I'll buy it. I, I'm kind of the opposite. I have, I think, mentioned before on the cast, I'm not a big fan of Tom Taylor. That being said, this was an extremely clever story. It was well written. I kind of like that he didn't go for the immediate route of Joker killing people as so many other writers in this collection have. I thought that was 
clever and still in character for Joker. I really don't like Eduardo Rizzo's art. I just think it's it feels too loose and unappealing. He does good work with moody stuff. Uh, his work on, I think it was the Detective Comics annual with the silhouettes was really cool. But I just, I don't like his his faces or his pencils. So this was a very clever, very intelligent story. So definitely worth checking out. What do you believe in? I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you a stranger. Story 8, No Heroes. Written by Eduardo Medeiros and Rafael Albuquerque. Artist Rafael Albuquerque. Two goons rob a bank. Most of the employees are tied up, but one, Ronald Ferguson, manages to sneak away. He debates whether or not to flee through an exit door, but upon seeing a fire extinguisher, Ronald musters the gumption to fight back. He charges out to face the bank robbers, whacking a couple of them before having a gun pulled on him. Tied up, Ronald listens as one of the goons talks about how most people wouldn't bother playing the hero. The goon goes into how he doesn't quite understand why someone would sacrifice himself to protect a bank, especially when the bank wouldn't care less about the insignificant employee. Ronald tells the goon that he did it for the people. Oh gosh, right in my soft spot, says the goon. He pulls off his mask to reveal that he's actually the Joker and tells Ronald that he has a crush on heroes. Joker shoots all of the hostages except Ronald. Come on, Ronald, smile. Not everyone gets a second chance at life. Really, the most of it. This one, I thought was one of the my favorite arts, which is not saying much that I'm going to start with art when I really don't even mention art. But I really did like the art in this one. Like It kind of takes place at night, or at least in the evening, and there's a lot of shadow. And I just, I don't know, I liked the colors. I liked the, the contrast between the bright, the brighter like reds and yellows of of the flashback and the misty almost water underwater blues of of being in the bank um this is probably a lot more clever than i'm able to unpack but i i did i did like it i really liked ron for considering we got so little of him and he barely says anything but i liked how brave he was even though he was so scared and i think it's definitely within joker to to take away from Ron wanted. So what Ron wanted to save everyone. So he, you know, Joker punishes him by, by making sure that he's the only one that survived and that everyone else dies. So I think that's an evilness of Joker that's on par and a joke that he would think is funny, which obviously is not, it's gross, but I thought, I thought it was interesting and I really did like the art a lot. Yeah. The art was the best part of the story. Um, yeah. <laughs> now I'm about to set Steph off, set Steph off a little bit by saying I had reminiscent thoughts of The Dark Knight in reading this. Really? Uh, yeah. In, yeah, in the beginning scene where they, mm-hmm. when they robbed the bank and in the Joker's the last one of the goons left, and you know he takes that mask off, you know, to reveal his true self. Uh, the story was okay. Uh, it wasn't great, but the art was absolutely beautiful. But you know, it's it's Raphael Albuquerque, so you know you're gonna get some good work from him. 
Yeah, that's it. It makes me really sad that the whole thing takes place in the one room of the bank and that, you know, the art couldn't have been shown off. Couldn't show off from your other rooms and other talents. Yeah, and and and, and on, on first read, I didn't realize he killed everyone. I just thought he killed his goons. But going back the second time around, I did see, you know, everybody dead. So, yeah, that was weird. But it made sense with the with the plot of the story. I thought this was quite clever. I'm not I'm not a huge fan again of letting artists write especially in big things like this. I thought Liam Sharp was clever, but it wasn't super deep and I think this is also clever, but again not super deep. Albuquerque, however, has a long history of drawing the Joker, sometimes even very controversial things like the Batgirl cover that was never sold. So I think that it was appropriate for him to draw it. And since he wanted to write it, I guess it was appropriate for him to write it too. And it definitely wasn't a bad story. It was it was just kind of shallow, I think. What if we say no? Well, Tony, <laughs> we can't do business. Why, we'll just shake hands and that'll be it. <laughs> oh, I got a live one here. <laughs> the penultimate story is Penance. Written and drawn, oh boy, another one of these, by Tony S. Daniel. A mobster walks into a confession booth at St. Michael's Church. He asks the priest to forgive his sins, then go into a story how he met he and his men, a small gang, killed one of the Joker's henchmen. The henchman is carrying a unique medallion. They hid the body, but the Joker knew what they did. The mobster relays how his men were killed and strung out, of how he turned his home into a fortified bunker. He then tells the priest he's been having dreams of being Batman, and in those dreams, Joker kills him again and again. It's oddly empowering. The mobster resolves to deliver the medallion back to Joker in person so that he can kill Mr. J once and for all. Before he can finish his confession, the priest kills the mobster. It turns out that the priest was Joker in disguise. What do we think of Penance? This one... (laughs) I don't know. I have mixed feelings on this one. The art, obviously, was pretty great because I've come to appreciate Tony Daniel and do not hold it against him for having to draw that awful, awful, awful Batman story, <laughs> The Gift. Actually, the best part of that was probably the art. This is, I mean, it's it's again that Joker is everywhere, Joker knows everything kind of thing. Uh, even though most of the haunting of Joker, obviously, are these nightmares that this goon is having. At the end, you know, the the priest is the Joker who knew that the goon would come here. And he knew to dress up as the, as the, as the priest. So it's, I don't know. I guess I have to just let Joker be able to do that because that's what people like to have him do. And I guess it's comics and nothing really ever makes sense. <laughs> I kind of wanted to know more about the medallion. Like, through this whole story, that was what I was interested in, is I didn't care about the guy's nightmares. I didn't care about mob families. I was like, no, no, tell me about this medallion. What does it do? Where are we going? What's going on? And I cared more about that. So at the end, when really just the Joker steals it after killing the guy, I was kind of, I don't know, disappointed. Yeah, this is this is another story where the art is better than the story itself. The story isn't bad, but the art is much better. But again, it's Tony Daniels, so you can kind of expect that. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Yeah, the art was good. The story was okay. 
I basically just agree with both of you. I think that the last story, even though it was another writer-artist, was much cleverer. This wasn't super clever. It was just mostly a fun twist reveal, which was well done, but not much more. And our final story. So here's goodbye so soon. You'll find your separate ways. With time so short, I'll say so long and go so soon. Goodbye. <laughs> Two Fell into the Hornet's Nest. Written by Brian Azzarello. Art by Lee Bermejo. Joker returns to Arkham and settles in with his fellow rogues. They play cards, and Batman stops by to torment them. Joker asks to watch TV, and the nurse, and nurse Ratchet, the head nurse of Arkham Asylum, refuses his request. Joker complains about how he feels stuck in a loop with Batman. He's forcibly given a lobotomy. And upon returning to his bed in Arkham, Joker picks up a golden statue of Superman, tosses it out of the window, and escapes. So, I mean, this is obviously supposed to be <laughs> some kind of twist or play on one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which I have to admit, it's been a fair minute since I read that and watched that movie. It was probably high school. But I had absolutely no idea what was going on in this story. It's just, it. every panel just kind of jumps around. I mean, obviously... If you think about it, maybe it's supposed to be like that. Like, this is Joker actually being insane. He's being lobotomized. He's being electrocuted. He's being treated. He's having hallucinations. I don't think any of the scenes of Batman, Batman is actually really there. Because I don't think Arkham would let Batman with a hose to hose down the inmates while Robin takes pictures with his phone. Like, it's... I had such a hard time tracking this. I had a hard time wanting to track it. Like, I didn't go back to try to figure it out because I didn't care. I didn't like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, I understand it's very good and I appreciate it. But it's not something that I love enough that I will will study and and try to understand how this story relates to that story. And it was weird. And the art is good but it's a good art of ugly things like drooling joker with red eyes and a giant scar on his head and half his hair missing it's just i don't know it was weird and and it just made me think more of a psycho drug trip than a anything else <laughs> that's all i got psycho drug trip psycho drug yeah i i can i can i can i can dig it <laughs> um yeah for me, yes. The last time I read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was definitely in high school. I've seen the movie more recently than that, but still, it's it's been a while. And this was a weird take on it that I was not crazy about. I am one of the, probably one of the few people who is not a huge fan of Behemoth's art. It's okay, but for some reason, I'm I'm not a fan of how he draws Batman. But between the art and, and the story, the art is is the best. It's unfortunate that the book had to end on on this note. Yeah, um, I'm, it wasn't it wasn't great at all. What makes it much worse for me is that this is clearly Azarello and Bermejo being extraordinarily petty. 
the entire story is a bunch of jokes about how they weren't able to show Batman nude. That is the point of the story. That is what all of the main jokes are about. And I can't believe that DC let them do this because agree it's offensively petty it's not clever it's not funny it's gross and it's unprofessional and i think that they should be ashamed of themselves and i think dc is incredibly dumb for publishing something that is this unprofessional and and petty well it well it makes you wonder who in between when batman dam came out and in this story who made that decision uh, oh, we know who made the decision. We, uh, it was Pam Lifford, the new head of uh, this division that includes DC. She did not like that Batman was nude, and she said, you can't do that. Which would then make you question, why would she allow it, allow this story to run, knowing that it was a, a, a direct assault on her decision? Well, my guess is that no one told her. My guess is that they, um, I mean, this is a little tricky to understand. It's a short story. It's in an anthology. It's sort of at the end. My guess is that compared to Batman Damned, which was the first issue in a new line, and it was really obvious what was going on, this is like the sixth or seventh anniversary edition with tons of stories in it, and she probably didn't read it that carefully. It was stupid. Like, I didn't know any of that, and I did not enjoy this at all. So. Uh, I, and that's kind of the... Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, I picked up on it immediately. I, I, I mean... The, the corpse with the with the so-called jokes were, were were very very obvious. I mean, it's just I, I I didn't want to touch on it because I knew that Ian was gonna was gonna rant on it <laughs> himself, and so I didn't I didn't want to take that joy from from him. I, I mean, appreciate but, that. <laughs> I mean, but it, I mean, it was it, it it was bad, and it was obvious. Once was you realize what they're doing, everything becomes clear. Yeah, I mean. Did you check the credits on who's writing this? Come on. Really? Anyway. I had, I had a hard time even following what was going on panel to panel. I was not picking up on anything clever or otherwise. <laughs> so they darkened it. Oh, just, it's just dumb. It was dumb. Yeah, it wasn't clever. So, not at all. So let's, um, let's give this a rating. Out of five Joker Smiles, what would we rate this collection? Well, unfortunately, I think I liked more stories from this one than the Catwoman one. But now that we've kind of gone over again, I do just enjoy the Catwoman one more. Like the, the Joker doesn't enjoy life. Joker does not have a whimsy that I appreciate. <laughs> so even at its best, it's not something I would like. So I'm just going to have to give it... And I feel horrible because it's it's more my opinion of Joker than really any merit of the stories. But I, I'm going to have to say two. I, I, I'm going to give it two as well. I, I probably I, I I probably should give it one and a half simply from that story itself. That 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 Azarella story should not have been released in this. It it, it wasn't great as as much as I was not a fan of the. Catwoman spectacular. I like this one even less. So, yeah. Be gracious with the two that I'm giving because it's probably worth less than that. 
interestingly, I think I'm going to take off exactly the same amount of points. So instead of a 3.5 for Catwoman, I'm giving this a 3. And that's mostly because I was just so impressed with a James Tynan punchline story. I thought that really was worthwhile reading, and I appreciate that. There's a ton of great art on display and a lot of skill. My own personal feelings is that the Joker is not nearly as cool as people think he is, and I don't like what he stands for. So this is a collection that's definitely not for me. And I think I've tried to make a case for why, even if you are a fan of it, it's not necessarily all the best crafted stories. But there's there's a lot of great talent. Scott Snyder does really solid work, even with some of his flaws. Denny O'Neill does one of his last stories. And I don't know if it's Tom because... Tom Taylor, sing the praises of Tom Taylor. You can do it. Do it. Do it. I will not. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it's because he's he's gone now. But I really appreciated what Denny O'Neill was doing. It did feel like a fitting last, not last story, but one of the last stories that he wrote. It, it feels like a cap on his work and is polished. And of course, the great Jose Luis Garcia doing phenomenal work on art. You know, two old masters doing masterful work. I just, I feel that does lift it to a three for me. So overall, I think this gives it a 2.5. Joker smiles out of five. And that brings us to our final special segment celebrating 300 issues of the Batman Universe Comics Podcast with its founder and its longest-running host and our beloved leader, Dustin. What does that mean? All right, so for this special segment for our episode 300 recording, we have the founder and chief editor and former chief host on the Batman Universe comic podcast, Dustin. Yes, it is I. I have returned from the dead. I hope you weren't really dead, but uh, we also have Theo with us. Hola. And we have some questions to catch up with Dustin on how he's been doing since he turned over the podcast to our crazy team. How have you been doing? Pretty good. Um, very, very busy. Um, part of the reason, obviously, that I left the comic cast was because I was trying to focus on a lot of the other stuff with TBU and other personal stuff. I'm in the process of moving. I'm in the process of uh, ramping, uh, growing my, my business that I've got. So there's a lot of, lot of things all over the place. Plus, the other podcast that I run outside of TBU is, is growing over there as well. So lots of super busyness. And uh, also, I guess now would be a prime time to mention that uh, the TBU podcast is actually going to be returning probably at the very latest by the end of summer. I know I've been telling people that forever, but uh, we actually have two hosts in place to join me. And we're going to be doing talking all the stuff including a little bit of comics, but mostly the other stuff, movies, television, that kind of stuff. So I've been putting some thought and process stuff into that. So it's been uh, not not uh, very unbusy. That's exciting news. Um, I know that you do keep up with the comics, so 
What are your thoughts of the current state of the Batman universe in comics? Yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting time. Obviously, with the pandemic that's been happening, we've been having a lot more months. Almost two full months have gone by without any real major comics being released. Meaning, there's you know, obviously, we've got Batman Beyond and Red Hood and issues that don't really affect a lot of the other things. But the big book that everyone's been waiting for is obviously Batman with Joker War. And that one has been on a hiatus since March. So the thing is, how since I left, let's see what has happened. Tom King was done and Tynan came on the book. And I honestly think that Tynan is a perfect fit for the book. I think that he really understands Batman at a core level that some writers don't. Other writers try to fix and tweak and do things, and I don't think Tynan's doing that. I think Tynan's just utilizing what everyone has best known the character to be and telling stories that are unique to him, but also unique to, you know, just us as readers. I mean, this Joker War thing, we'll see how it actually pans out, but the buildup has been pretty interesting. Um, outside of Batman, Detective Comics just keeps kind of chugging along for the time being. It'll be interesting to see what happens after Joker War, because we know it's going to be tying into Joker War. Obviously, there's a ton of titles that are going to be tying into Joker War in the coming months. So it's nice to see not only a crossover amongst a lot of the Bat books, but also a crossover that actually has a meaningful crossover, unlike some of the other ones we've seen in the past with Night of Owls and Zero Year, where it's just like they're fundamentally included in the crossover. They take little bits and pieces from the overall cue of the main story, and then they just do what their, their own thing. I honestly feel like these crossovers are going to be like the old-style pre-New 52 crossovers where that actually is tying in to a much larger degree. So it'll be interesting to see that. And Tynan is one of those writers that I honestly believe he enjoys having crossovers and making them meaningful and not just the you know peripheral, hey, do you want to be my crossover? Yeah, I sell a lot of books. Do you want to... You want to you want to get some of that? You want to you want to get a little sales rub, and I think that's what we saw a lot with Snyder and even not necessarily Tom King because he was pretty much doing his own thing. But when they did do things that would somehow cross into what he was doing, it was it just felt like a sales rub situation where a writer is never going to say no. Like I remember back during the New Fifty Two, whenever Snyder would have a crossover, he would always sit there and say, "Yeah." I'm not telling anybody they have to be in the crossover. I just go to them and I ask them whether or not they want to be in the crossover. And they say instantaneously, yes, of course I want to be in the crossover. But when your book is selling like a third of the number of issues that that per, that writer who's asking you to be part of the crossover, what, what, what else would you do? Like say no and then not have a little bit of a sales bump for a month or two? I mean, like it just doesn't make any sense. So, but I think Tynan actually, he puts thought into how, it, let's, let's be honest, he's also one of the architects behind Batman Eternal and Batman Robin Eternal. And while they're not flawless in any way, there's plenty of opportunities for you to see that he can tell stories that include lots of different creators at the same exact time and, and kind of twisting and turning and, and making them connect in a unique and well thought out manner. So I think that uh, outside of outside of the crossover, the, there's a couple of things that are coming up that I'm kind of glad are happening. There's rumors that Batman Red, or uh, not Batman. There's rumors that Red Hood Outlaw is going to be ending with number 50. Now, that would put that issue coming out, I believe, in, in November. 
so that's not or no no October October based off the current release schedule so that's not something we're going to hear about but there's been rumors that that book's coming to an end we know Harley Quinn's ending with number 75 I honestly believe that both of those series they should end um Catwoman, Batgirl, Nightwing, I think those books should stick around, but I definitely think that they need new creative teams, new life put into them, more connection into the current version of whatever's happening within Gotham City, because Nightwing has been in Bloodhaven on his own, doing his own thing, with very little connection to the Batman universe, and I think that's why that book has been floundering. Batgirl's kind of been doing almost the same thing with Burnside, and then you've got Catwoman, who's been in Villa Hermosa for a while, and I know she's coming back, but these are characters that fundamentally could add a lot of depth into what has, you know, has been happening within the Batman comics, and adding more reason to pick them up, but they just don't because they're so disconnected. So, I think overall the books are doing a good job. I think that. I'm glad to see that books that uh, it, it just comes down to, I obviously want everything connected. I want everything to, to matter and doing a, a ton of series that don't connect, don't deal with each other. You know, every time we keep getting these like little glistens of hope with, uh, you know, rebirth, they made it seem like some of the stuff was going to start reconnecting and then they go down the path of making it seem like things are going to be connected for six months and then all of a sudden it just goes off and does its own thing. That's what happened with Red, Hall, Red Hood Outlaw. You, you assumed that Red Hood was going to be like this agent for Batman to do things that are a little bit more gray than Batman typically does, but then he went off and he did his own thing and he just, that entire thought process went away. So long story short, I think the books are, are in a position where they could move to a very, very good spot. I just think that it's going to take some new creative teams and some more behind-the-scenes connections. I know that for the longest time, the Bat books have been ran by two editors, and uh, hopefully the that that is no longer the case now that Tom King's not on a Bat book because that was part of the reason the books were being split between two editors. So I'm hoping that... We have a little bit more connection and the editorial realizes that it's better for the other books. You know, like, yeah, it's great to have Batman having, you know, 100,000 sales per issue. But when you have all the supporting characters only averaging about 20 to 25,000 issues per or sales per issue, it doesn't help. You know, if you had them more interconnected, you could be seeing 40,000 or 45,000 per issue. And those aren't unreasonable numbers if the, if it actually mattered and, and people actually wanted to pick them up. And if that was the case, that's better for the overall line as a whole. I mean, obviously going from, let's say, five books at 20,000 a piece to five books at 40,000, that's double your numbers. I mean, it's just, it makes sense. And I, I honestly believe that the times where things are more connected, more people buy those other books besides just Batman. I think Scott Snyder and Tom King, while they've done a great job doing what they did, they very, they very much so were in a position of segmenting the Batman universe in a position where you didn't need to pick up the other books. Nobody needed to read the other books. And they need to get to the point where you should be wanting to read those other books because it adds to the story. So I'm hoping Joker War is the start of that. I've heard some people say that we're looking at a period of DC Comics that feels very much like the 90s. So things like Nightfall and Cataclysm and No Man's Land. Do you think that's true or do you think there's a distinctly different 
flavor you're getting from 2020 Batman comics. I wouldn't say that it is 90s comics. I think the thing is, is it on the cusp of potentially being like 90s comics? Certainly. I mean, obviously it's going to depend on how Joker War pans out, but I do believe that that there's the potential for that. And while so many people, I think part of the thing was the new 52 was all about, well, when we have a crossover, you're not required to pick up all the books because it doesn't make any sense. But why in any, why in any mindset as a business would that want, would you want that to be what you are trying to market? Hey, we're having this crossover. Don't pick up all the books because you don't need to. No, you want to tell everybody pick up all the books because it, it because it makes sense. It's going to add a, another layer to the story. Certainly in the 90s, you could pick up Batman and Detective and, and go forward and not necessarily read all the other books that are out there. But when you did and you read them in the order that they were intended, it adds a huge, it adds so much more to the story and it's way better for the story for it to be like that. I think that is, I've always appreciated comics like that. It's no secret that No Man's Land is the story that brought me into Batman comics on a you know on, on a normal periodical basis. So the thing is, I obviously would love to see more of that. I really do want to see more connections within the Batman universe and the comics that are released monthly because honestly, the, the there's no real reason to even have these other characters within the Batman universe if you're not connecting them to each other. The the relationships that they have with each other adds such a larger element to the story that. You don't really get with a lot of the other titles. Sure, there, sure, there's other characters that have relationships, but the Bat Family is is so, you know, it should be such a close knit group of characters that are interacting with each other on a normal basis. Where it's you shouldn't be making a big deal when Nightwing is appearing in Batgirl, or you shouldn't be making a big deal when Red Hood is appearing in Detective Comics. It shouldn't be a thing that is you know a marketing point. It should be just be hey, this is happening because. This is what is expected between these books. So I think that while it could certainly get to the point of 90s comics, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not going to, I'm definitely not the person who's going to sit here and badmouth the 90s comics. I mean, there's, there's clearly ups and downs of what was, what came out, but some of the best storylines included, you know, every series that was being put out by the bad office. So I think that if we got back to a situation like that, I think sales across the board would go up, not down. And I don't think that's a bad thing for DC either. So I don't know why there's this like affinity to do that because, or affinity against doing that because it just doesn't make any sense to not want to sell more issues. You know, as a, as a, I could see an issue with just having a creator come in and saying, Hey, X creator, would you like to, um, or creator X, would you like to come in here and uh, write a story? It's going to tie into this other thing. And, you know, the problem is that the way creators in today's day and age, it seems at least they're treated is that they come in and they're set, they, they make a pitch for a story and that's what they're expected to do is whatever their pitch is. They're not really coming in to just basically like, write a supporting story for a main storyline that's happening in a different book that's typically not what you see it's also one of the reasons why in the 90s so many comics were written by the same exact writers because they were just basically writing other storylines that were parallel with their main story that they were telling so i think that if we got to a point where it's 90s comics i'm not going to complain but i do think we're not there yet so you mentioned uh scott snyder a few times um I know you didn't mention what's what, what's getting ready to come out, but are you looking forward to 
his his follow up to Dark Knight Metal uh, with Death Metal. Uh, let me answer that resound uh, with a resounding. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I think the thing Please is. Please elaborate. Yes. So I think the the biggest thing is that Scott Snyder. There's no question he's a great writer. He can tell great stories. But I think the problem is that when Scott Snyder is allowed to just go and do whatever he wants and he's not held within some sort of restrictions, he goes a little bit further than I think anybody really should be allowed to go. And that's not to say that there aren't people who do the exact same thing. Grant Morrison is another example of if you give him just a little bit too much room, he will take that room and then he'll probably go a little bit further. And Snyder, it feels like, has become that. And it's nothing against Snyder. Let me be very clear. Snyder, I've met multiple occasions. I've talked with him multiple occasions. He's a very nice guy. He's he's a great person, very humble. But I just have problems with the stuff that he writes and honestly when i look back at the group of work that he's done obviously when he started within the batman universe he was working on black mirror and that story was a great story we all i don't think there's a there's very few people out there who will sit there and say black mirror is not an enjoyable story but i think the thing is that is what you get when you tell a writer like scott Snyder, who's very good at writing and telling a very good story to do a story within the confines of, you know, what editorial is allowing. At that time, Dick Grayson was Batman. So Dick Grayson is the character you have to tell a story on. And he did that. He told a story with Dick Grayson as Batman and incorporated other elements from the past into the story and brought back a character like James Jr. and involved the Gordon family a lot more than I think a lot of people have been have have seen in a while. So I think that that's a perfect example. Then you get to his New 52 run, and if you watch what happens in the confines of, like, Corvallis and, like, the first two years of him being on that book, it's very much so in line with editorialists saying, we want this version of Batman, give us stories related to this version of Batman. There's very little that he's doing within the stories that is jeopardizing stuff that's happened in the past. Yes, there's clearly situations where he doesn't acknowledge things or pretends like certain things don't exist like the whole Damien situation and while he had his reasons for that there is the thing about there's the whole thing about um Damien not being able to be in the books because it was too close to his son's age I don't agree with that but I understand why he chose to do what he did after the first two years of him being on the book the issue is that he, they started to give him a lot more free reign because his sales numbers were so high the book was very successful and the thing is, you don't have any, you don't have a situation where you can sit there and, and go and say, hey, we need you to rein it in. You got to rein it in because obviously you let him tell a story and he does very good. Sales numbers are very high. The problem is that that has happened year after year after year. And now we've gotten to the point where he's doing these metal books or in the case of you know in the in the case of he's he did Dark Knight's Metal and then he did Justice League which I believe Justice League is just an extension of what he was doing with Dark Knight's Metal but now we've gotten to this thing where now he's basically created this sub universe within the stories that some people don't have any desire to use or reference or work with at all but it's sold well, so it's not like they can ignore it. Instead of just doing the story as some sort of Elseworlds story or its own singular thing with Black Label or something like that, they let him do it. It was successful, and now it's not like they're going to sit there and say, 
he's going to come to them and say, hey, I've got this idea for a new story. And they're going to be like, yeah, no, we don't want to do that. We're, we definitely don't want to sell, you know, a quarter of a million copies of, of one book and then, you know, subsequent 100K of a, of a couple others. That's not even part of our main line. Yeah, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Of course, they're not going to turn it down. So I think the, the biggest thing is I just don't think that his stories work well within the confines of what normal continuity is. I think he's trying to change continuity too much whenever he's telling a story and editorial just lets him do it because he sells well. And I don't agree with that. I think that there's a limit on how much you can actually allow a writer to do. And that's what editorial's job is. And they just don't do it. They did it with Grant Morrison. He got to Batman R.E.P., he did Batman Inc., and they were like, okay, despite the fact that you're selling super well, and despite the fact that you're telling a story that is clearly not done, we are taking you off the book. We are going to take you off the book, and we're replacing you with somebody new. They did that to Grant Morrison, but Snyder, they just kept letting him do it until he was like, yeah, I don't have any more Batman stories right now, so I'll go do something else. And I think they just need to figure out a way to balance reining him in along with acknowledging that he does great sales because just saying hey you sell really well so we'll just let you do whatever we want whatever you want it just doesn't make any sense for the company as a whole it it fragments the company and i think that's what we've been seeing for such a long period of time within dc comics is this like fragmented nature of of continuity because you've got these big writers who are doing stories they're successful and they're just like, well, we have some success over here and obviously we want great sales. So let's just keep having great sales and not worry about how everything's connected. And while I am, obviously we had a big moment happen in the last couple months about Dan DiDio leaving or fired or however they want to spin it. But that all happened. And when that happened, it was kind of interesting because it actually seemed like DiDio had finally realized the error of a lot of his ways with a lot of the stuff that happened with Rebirth and the New 52 and DCU and Convergence and all these other things that have happened in the last 10 years and seemingly seemed to be going in a direction where he understood that continuity does matter and continuity shouldn't be shifting just willy-nilly whenever a writer comes along with a great story. So, yeah, but now he's not there, and I don't know that there's anybody else there who's immediately thinking that process because, well, I, we don't know the extent of what was going to happen with 5G or how far it was going to change things or anything like that because now it's probably unlikely to actually happen the way it was originally planned at least. I do think that the idea of making continuity actually matter was a very important aspect of that plan that should have should have happened. And I don't think that's the case because now when you look at everything that's coming in the coming months from the, you know, the big projects, you've got three jokers coming out at the same time as you've got Snyder's follow up to metal. I just don't know that they're they're It just is the same thing. You've got these big stories by big writers. They'll sell really well, but ultimately what do they really matter? How will three jokers actually affect what's going on? I don't think it will. I think it's just its own thing right now. And if it proves to be super successful, maybe it'll fall. There'll be fallout from it. But yeah, it's a it's a troubling time. So you kind of you kind of hinted at what your answer would be. To uh, I had a follow up. So considering you mentioned earlier that you think some of these books, Nightwing and Catwoman and Red Hood, need some new creative direction, you wouldn't you wouldn't. It doesn't seem you would promote Snyder being one of them. Oh, no, definitely not. 
I, 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 like I said, I have nothing against Snyder as a person, but as a writer, I think that he doesn't work well with other writers in the sense of he doesn't, he can't tell a story that isn't his own, like, giant story and have other stories tie into it that make sense. And having Snyder come out, I just, well, the other part of it is, and I hate to say this, but Snyder is too top tier to be on Catwoman or Nightwing or Red Hood or any of the other supporting titles. He's just too top tier. The book, those books don't sell enough. And not to say that they couldn't have a significant boost in sales if he was on those books. But I just don't see it. I, I don't see them putting... Like, there's there, there's a problem with the way creative creators work nowadays. And it's once you get to a top-tier book, you can only be on top-tier books. I mean, there's plenty of writers who will write other things because they have a story. But, like, when you look at Grant Morrison, he was... He was on Batman. He moved over and he was telling other stories. He did the whole multiversity thing. You look at some of his other projects that he's worked on. Now he's he's doing Green Lantern with season one and season two of that book. He's on a character that, while Green Lantern isn't necessarily a top tier as, as Batman, it is one of those things where if someone approaches you and says, I have a story for Green Lantern that is this, like Jeff Johns did with, with Blackest Night and all of that. The thing is, as a editor or as a senior editor within the company you're going to be like okay let me hear it and then when the pitch sounds interesting you're going to be like okay this could really elevate this character to a larger degree but the problem is when you look at Nightwing or Batgirl or Red Hood or Catwoman you just none of those characters are characters that you can sit there and say let's elevate these characters certainly they could make a movie about Nightwing or Batgirl or Catwoman or any of these characters but they're just, they're really not. And the thing is, like, their focus is going to be on the top tier characters. Flash, Aquaman, Green Lantern, the whole, you know, the members of the Justice League. That's going to be their focus. And once they get those characters cemented into a really fine spot where they're consistently doing well no matter what writer is on them, then you can have, you know, then you can start focusing on some of the other characters within the the sub universes of the of the of the main characters the issue is that you just don't see that happening and the problem is that ultimately you look at you know nightwing and 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 catwoman and batgirl and those books they just don't sell well and i don't think the money would be worth it for them to have a top tier writer working on one of those titles cuz even in their best days i mean does anybody really think that Batgirl or Nightwing could outsell Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman. I mean, like, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But is it likely? No, I don't think so. So, I mean, the thing is, I just don't see them using a writer, especially one that they have under an exclusive contract, to sit there and say, we're paying you a bunch of money. Let's let's go have you sell, you know, basically write a, a title to sell a ton of, uh, of issues. I just don't see it happening. So, yeah. So can we talk about Joker War a little more? I know we said on the comic cast that you know that we're all pretty much excited about what what what's going to be coming out uh, based on the hints that Tynion has put out, whether it's in this newsletter or on Twitter. Uh, what are you looking forward most from it? 
honestly, I'm looking to I'm looking forward to whatever the fallout of Joker War is because I think that Joker War is one of these moments within Batman comics that can really change the direction of not just Batman and Detective Comics, but also the peripheral books like Nightwing, Catwoman, Batgirl. I think that's really what I'm looking forward to the most is seeing what what fallout do we have after Joker War wraps up because we're heading towards Batman number 100. We're heading towards uh, number 75s and number 50s for certain titles and things like that. So I'm interested to see what happens after Joker War. Now, that's not to say I'm not I'm not pumped for you know what Joker War is. I think Tynion is a great, great person at marketing his own stuff. I think he almost does a better job than DC themselves because if it wasn't for his newsletter pumping you know these character designs and his his thought processes behind some of these characters. I don't know that DC would even be doing these, you know, marketing these, these this title as well as they they have been because a lot of what they're doing is just following up with the stuff he's been doing in his own newsletter. So I think he's doing a great job at, uh, you know, at uh, pushing that forward. And I think that ultimately it'll be really great to see what happens outside of the end of Joker War because. That could be the moments where we bring the comics that I really want to be included with the main stories back together and be telling better combined stories. So, if if, if I can just ask this quick question before we we let you go, you know, it was recently announced that you were uh, named an ambassador for DC Comics. So, how did that come about? Yeah. So, basically, back in February, DC put out a call for ambassadors. I had no idea what it was, and I was just curious to see what it was because I figured at the very least I could help promote whatever it was because I obviously run a Batman website and we have lots of people within the sites and with the staff and the the readers and the listeners and the fans that come to TVU. I figured, well, this could be something that maybe some other people would be interested in too. And basically what it was was DC Comics, Warner Brothers Consumer Products, and a, uh, a company by the name of Tongle have teamed up to create what they're calling DC Ambassadors. And the first group of DC Ambassadors were specifically f- people who were fans of either Batman or Wonder Woman. And basically the gist of it is you had to apply, you had to answer a, a bunch of questions, you had to make a video showcasing what makes you a great fan. And I'll be honest, I am not the type of person who typically gets in front of a camera. I'm typically behind a microphone exactly the way I am right now. But I figured what's there to lose? I've been wanting to grow the TBU YouTube for a while, and this might be the opportunity to do that. Because while it's super easy just to review product, you have to have the product. And a lot of people don't realize this, while we do have ads and we have affiliate links on the site, we don't really bring in hardly anything when it comes to that stuff. We barely scoot by with the amount of money that we bring in from Patreon and things like that. So I figured... Well, I don't have the money to go out and purchase a bunch of products to review, and my collection is super particular with what I collect so that I'm not going to be buying a bunch of stuff and then ripping it open because I'm one of those horrible collectors that refuses to open anything. So I thought, 
okay, if I could get product that I wouldn't otherwise purchase to review and you know grow the, the TBU YouTube page, why not? So I applied, and while I have no idea how many people actually applied, I know that there was only four chosen for both Wonder Woman and then four chosen for Batman, and I was one of them. And basically what that entails is that DC, Warner Brothers, and a bunch of the companies that create products for DC and Warner Brothers, specifically like Lego, Mattel, Spin Master, these companies are actually going to be sending products to me directly, and then I will be reviewing these products, posting a video for everyone to see what these products are that they have. And yeah, I mean, a lot of things are kind of up in the air because... Like I said, this was announced back in February. I didn't actually officially find out that I was chosen until the beginning of May. I announced, we were allowed to announce it publicly on, on uh, social media a couple weeks ago. In, and, and then basically from there, it's just kind of a waiting game to see what happened because everything that's currently going on in the world with the pandemic and things like that has put a lot of... Uh, pins in things and delays and things like that so it's kind of like a wait and see but i did get a list of some stuff that's coming soon which is a bunch of you know like toys and and, and products and things like that so basically what you can expect to see in the very near future from tbu outside of like i said the return of the tbu podcast is some more youtube content that we'll be having on the site talking about different products and things like that that they send and basically my job as a dc ambassador and i don't get paid it's just literally they give me these products to review the basically you'll be seeing these products it'll be better for tbu because we'll have products that we can review and then i can give you my thoughts on them when i get those products so that's what you can expect from that pro that project, which I, I, I completely forgot to bring up when I mentioned what was going on recently. So thanks for asking. Well, congrats on it. That is awesome news. And thank you so much for giving us some of your time um, to the Batman Universe comic podcast for the 300th episode. Hopefully we'll be able to get you again sometime in the future for other special occasions. But uh, where can we find you? Yeah, so you can find me personally. I have my personal Twitter is at Bearded Bat Chief. I do lurk around the Discord, obviously. So while I'm not necessarily posting, I do lurk around and, and read comments and things like that and chime in when I feel necessary. But most of the time I'm on Twitter. I do have uh, Instagram, but I don't really use it, so I wouldn't follow me over there. But uh, definitely Twitter is where the best place. But all the TBU accounts I monitor on a regular basis because I'm working those. So that's the easiest way to get in touch. And then obviously once we start posting videos for on YouTube for this ambassador program, I'll be reading the comments on those as well. So that's where you can find me. I don't have I don't I don't write a lot of articles, but I do edit almost every I do touch almost every single article that you'll see on the site. So while I may not be visually seen all the time, I'm always around. All right. Well, on to more episode 300.
All right. Thank you to our Patreons and supporters. We have Gerald Green, Donald Townsend, Tim Garassi, Captain America, Karinas, Mary Garrett, Real Naduces, Stanton's Grave, Brendan Roberts, Donovan Morgan Grant, Ed Grouse, Rob O, Ian Miller, Arturo Juarez, Stephanie Mounts, Joshua Lappin Bertoni, Hanagar, John McCloskey, and Theo. Thank you all for supporting us. You help us continue podcasting. For the rest of our hosts and for all you listeners who, whether you've joined us just this episode or you've joined us this season, for the last couple of years, for five years like me, for 12 years since the beginning like Dustin, we appreciate all of you listeners. And we hope to see you again next week. This has been Ian. This is Steph. And this is Theo. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comics Podcast, Episode 300. Thanks for listening. Down a ton to go.